Welcome back to the 411 Podcasting Network. I am your host, Larry Zonka, and this is a special retro NWA edition of the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. Remember, you can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the411mania.com website, and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Please enjoy the show today. All right, welcome back to the next segment of the show. We are going to do another retro review. This one personally selected by Steve Cook. Steve Cook, what are we going to do this evening? Oh, well, we're going to start a series that I've been a big fan of for many years because the first time I watched World Championship Wrestling slash Dice W was a special episode. It's aired on Wednesday nights. It was called The Clash of the Champions. And I watched it and I went nuts and I was I was enthralled by it. I became a Dice W wrestling fan. But that was Clash Champions 20. <laughs> We're going back to Clash Champions 1 here because Actually, Clash Champions won a pretty big deal in the world of professional wrestling. It was uh, it was uh, Jim Crockett Promotions firing back at the World Wrestling Federation. They're going to do their big WrestleMania four pay per view. Well, real quick, but, you got to go back though because this starts. Hold on, go further back. Vince tries and successfully yeah. fucks with Starcade by putting okay, on the yes, free yes. Survivor Series in '87. That's when it all started. And the, the well, no, hold on. Okay, it wasn't free. That wasn't free. That was just that was just Vince doing a pay per view. I know, but he Starcade. tried to fuck with them though. And the point was that that's what led to the cable companies eventually having to choose between the two, and they wouldn't run on the same nights going forward. And then, of course, that led to the bunkhouse stampede, which of course got counter programmed with the Royal Rumble. Yeah, free on USA. Which led to the Clash Champions on TBS opposite WrestleMania 4. Which, I mean, WrestleMania 4, let's be honest, it's a 16-man tournament. WrestleMania 4 is dog shit. It's not good. It's not good. Randy Savage wrestled four matches, and God bless Randy Savage for doing it. But, man, it, <laughs> if you look at the matches on paper, it looks, it looks a lot better than it actually was. It wasn't great. Yeah. It was not great. And uh, since, of course... The Bunkhouse Stampede, which was a, also a shit show, let's be honest. Yeah. That show. Ugh. Bad, bad. But, of course, WDF promotes against the Royal Rumble, and that gets cut in the nuts. So, once we get WrestleMania 4, Jim Crockett fires back with the Clash of the Champions live on TBS opposite of uh, WrestleMania on the SIPA station, Mother TBS Daddy, if you will, going to the pay window. Yeah, brother. That's right. And this show takes place Greensboro, North Carolina, the Greensboro Coliseum. One of the hubs of Jim Crockett promotions. Yeah. Uh, did a six uh, about 6,000 fans paid. We have Jim Ross, Tony Schiavone, and Bob Cottle on commentary. Yes. Uh, I'm a big Bob Cottle fan, to be honest with you. Bob, like Bob Cottle was fucking great. He was a great territorial commentator. Great to be doing interviews and whatnot. And he had JR down at Ringside, of course, and Tony Schiavone doing. Did I say a kick ass announced team? 
They did. Let's be honest. They really did. So, Steve, we started off with the NWA World TV Championship match, which was an Olympic rules match. Yeah. Featuring uh, Mike Rotundo and Jimmy Garvin. And this version of Olympic <laughs> rules was three five-minute rounds and that it only takes a one count to win the match. Which right away seems like a horrible idea because you're fucking eliminating every near fall in the world. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not, it, it was a... I don't know where this idea came from, to be honest with you. <laughs> I know that uh, Mike Rotunda was part of the varsity club with uh, Kevin Sullivan and Rick, and Rick Steiner. I never understood why Kevin Sullivan was leading the varsity club. That was, I don't know what the deal was there. It's a weird situation. And it was a thing that happened. And Mike Rotunda has always been one of those guys that was there, was there to me. Jimmy Garvin, I've ta- we've talked about Jimmy Garvin before. Where he was kind of this guy that I felt like once I watched more of him on WWE Network, I like him. The more I see of Jimmy Garvin, the more I like him. But this was not the kind of match where he could shine, let's be honest. No, and I agree. And I, I like yeah. I like Jimmy Garvin as well. I, I always thought Kevin Sullivan, the fucking devil satanic taskmaster leading the varsity club. I mean, there's like, no. like they've done interviews to try to explain that like it was supposed yeah. to be more, but it never really was. It was just weirdo Kevin Sullivan hanging out with former college athletes. Yeah, it's some weird nonsense, to be honest with you. And Kevin Sullivan had a little bit of a thing for Precious, which led to the eventual finish of this match where there were some shenanigans going on and, uh, Sullivan jumped up on the apron. Precious jumps up on the apron, and uh, some stuff goes on. And uh, there's a one count eventually. And thank goodness, and Jim Garvin gets revenge. You see Precious hitting Rick Steiner with a two by four. <laughs> yeah, and it's kind of uh, it's not the fir- it's not the last time on this show where there's some awkward confrontations after a match where people attack other people. And other people just kind of stand there awkwardly, and it's it's kind of weird, kind of weird stuff. I don't know. It is, and I, like I said, I don't know. I think, that, like I said, I've heard interviews. They always wanted it to be more, and it never was. Though sure. I just never heard of anything good, like any good explanation. <laughs> so, but anyway, it's a, yeah, it's unfortunately a bad start to the show. Mike Rotundo retains as he gets the roll up for one. Yeah, the roll-up for one for Captain Mike Rotundo, who I'm, way, you know, one of his lost workers of yesteryear. But you know what? Pretty soon, you had Dr. Death Steve Williams out here for an interview. Okay. How about that? Yeah. That was something, right? Good old Dr. Death. We love Dr. Death. You can see why Steve Williams was not known as an interview. Yeah. <laughs> He's not he, a good talker at all. No, he wasn't. He was never a good talker. That's why you had Jim Ross with him, or you had somebody with him at any point, and uh, was what it was. But coming up next, we had a pretty f- fucking crazy, fantastic match with the it was the United States tag team titles on the line, the Midnight Express with Jim Cornette. You know, you have every, every mother's nightmare and every schoolgirl's dream. They're going against the Fantastics. And I recently talked about both of these teams because I did a list of tag teams that everybody should be checking out on the WWE Network right now. 
obviously, yeah, and if, you, if you can check these two teams out, you definitely should. Yes, obviously, the Midnights are just an all-time great team, and the Fantastics, I find, an all-time great team that doesn't always get their due because for many people, they fall in that weird category in time between the Fabulous Ones and the Rock and Roll Express to where... Yeah, there are people that absolutely love the fabulous ones. There are people that absolutely love the Rock and Roll Express, and I love both teams honestly. I think the Fantastics were better brawlers though. Oh, than definitely, either, either definitely, definitely. Hundred percent. I mean, the Fantastics better. and Sheep Herders was a fucking tremendous yeah. feud, and this and this thing was a fucking brawl too. Well, yeah, right out the bat, these two teams just went to fucking nuts. Exactly, but they the, went crazy. The thing I was gonna say is that like. <laughs> For as much as I love the Rock and Roll Express and I love the Midnight Express Rock and Roll Express feud, I will say that I think the Fantastics had better top-tier matches with the Midnights than the Rock and Rolls. Like, the Rock and Roll Express and Midnight Express had consistently good to great matches. But this is like, they only get, I think it's 10? 10, 18 maybe? Let me look at my time, what I got here. 10, 15. They get 10 minutes and 15 seconds, and apparently, according to Cornette, as the story is, they get to the building, told them they had 11 minutes. <laughs> and he said, yeah. fuck it, you're going to see the best goddamn 11 minutes you've ever seen. And it did. They did, absolutely. It felt a, it felt a lot longer, and, and, and in a good way. You know, some team, you know, some matches feel a long, feel like a lot long, a very long time. And I would not say as much as 11 minutes because it, it felt a lot longer and in a good way because they were both going nuts. They were running people in ring posts, running people in tables, just going all over the damn arena. It looked like a, it looked like a freaking ECW match. It was crazy. Yeah. it's They're going nuts. Oh, it's so, so good. It, everything that makes the Midnight Express work and made the Fantastic work worked here. Yeah. including everything from Jim Cornette's involvement and just, as Steve mentioned, the fantastic, fantastic brawlers. I mean, a lot of that comes from the fact that Bobby Fulton just had that old-school Southern mentality. Tommy Rogers was a great athlete way ahead of his time and could yeah. also take a great beating. And that was also the best thing about the Fantastics is you could <laughs> believably get the heat on either guy. And it yeah. worked every time. So they're just, it's so, so fucking awesome. This is, if you're looking for like star rating, this is a good four and a half probably for me. I love this match. I think it's one of their best matches together. And it's another proof positive. And I was just talking with uh, Mark Radlich on the show about this. And I've talked about it before. I always talk about not every fucking important match has to be 30 minutes. You know? No, it it doesn't. And I wish you would tell some people these days. Dude, that that's all I've been doing. I fucking even nuts. told O'Connor yeah. personally, God damn it. I've shouted directly to him. He's fucking tell awesome. Tell Triple H. Oh, God, don't remind me. They they reap. Tell Triple H and tell all his NXT buddies. They don't, they don't, okay. get, they don't need to go through the time. I know you time. didn't watch SmackDown. But on the last episode. I of saw Sm- a lot okay. of it, unfortunately. They re-aired Triple H and Roman Reigns 77-minute yeah. epic. Yeah. Why? You gotta fill some time. You gotta fill some time on that show for God's sakes. I don't know. Bad times. But uh of course this match had one of those finishes where Oh, we had a finish on this on this match where you had a referee get bumped. Which I mean the the fantastic bumped the referee, so it's kind of a bad situation. 
you know, the Fantastics hit the double team, get the pinfall. Tommy Young makes three count. But wait a minute. Wait a minute. There's some shenanigans going on here. Referee went on top rope. It's got to be disqualification. It's not going to work. It's a bad situation. And, you know, the Midnight Express retained titles. But, you know, people still were going crazy afterwards. And it was, uh, it was fantastic. It really was. I mean, it's... As much as I, as much as I dislike referee nonsense, it made sense here. You know, it can work <laughs> when done right and not yeah. overplayed. Yeah, although I don't know why Tommy Young. Can, I, I gotta tell you, I don't know why when Randy Anderson gets thrown over the top rope, that Tommy Young comes in, makes the three count, makes fantastic. What, what rule book is Tommy Young read? Doesn't Tommy Young know he's the NWA referee year for five straight years? Doesn't he know that when a referee gets thrown over top rope, that's a good disqualification? Come on now. You would think so, but Tommy Young was working on um, adrenaline that night. Maybe He was a baby face. You know, Tommy Young wanted to be a baby face. I'll be honest. He did. He always wanted to be a baby face and get pushed by Ric Flair and get pushed back and whatnot. And, you know. And when you watch this stuff back, I'm sure Tommy Young was a big old baby face referee back in the day. And people like me are like, man, Tommy Young, I don't know. And then Tony Schiavone tells some other stories about Tommy Young. <laughs> you know? <sighs> Tommy Young! But I this is a, this is definitely the... Uh, this, is good. this is great stuff, though. This is a great fucking match, is all yeah. I can say. And my recommendation always from Clash of the Champions 1 is, quite honestly... If you're looking for the absolute best match, you're short on time, and you can only watch one match from this show, for me, it's the Midnights and Fantastics. Well, if you're short on time, yes. <laughs> we have another match coming up later. It's a little bit longer on time. That's also great. But, yeah, if you're if you're looking for uh, something, if you're like, if you got 30 minutes to kill or something, then go ahead and click it on that, yes. Because just good stuff. I mean, the Midnight Express and Fantastics at their best. At their best. That's right. So we got the six-man tag team championships on the line. The are we gonna hold on? We're skipping ahead some stuff here. Larry. I'm sorry. We're skipping ahead of the uh, <laughs> the Eddie Haskell and Jim Cornette promo. Okay. Well, if I'm missing a promo, go ahead. I'm just I was focused on the matches. You tell me about these promos. Okay. We uh, we had Eddie Haskell talking to Jim Cornette for a few minutes, and that was pretty fantastic. And uh, Gary Hart and Al Perez came out talking about Dusty Rhodes. And we had Eddie, we had Francis Crockett come out talking about the top ten seeds for Jim Crockett's Senior Memorial Cup. And this is all good stuff right here. The top ten. You want me to read top ten, Larry? Sure. Hit me with the top ten. Uh, number number ten, Ivan Koloff and Dick Murdoch, obviously a top tag team. Number nine, Sting and Ron Garvin, matched by Magnum T.A., Number eight, the Varsity Club. Number seven, the Fantastics. Number six, Barry Wyndham and Lex Luger. Number five, Powers of Pain. Number four, Midnight Express. Number three, Road Warriors. Number two, Nikita Koloff and Dusty Rhodes. And number one, Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard, the Brain Busters. So you can see Francis Crockett here. I, I was wondering your opinion on Francis Crockett. I don't remember much about Francis Crockett, dude. I kind of... Kind of fast-forwarded through a lot of the promos. I stuff. thought she looked pretty good for her mid-40s, is all I'm saying about that. She wasn't like Judy she... Martin and looked like 60 at the time? <laughs> no, no, I thought she looked all right. I thought she looked all right, as long as I'm about that. But uh, we got a barbed wire match, which is a 
quotation marks, barbed wire match. Barbed wire <laughs> street fight, I think it was officially called. Yeah, and with Road Warriors and Dusty Rhodes and Powers of Pain and Ivan Koloff, and uh, let's be honest, the barbed wire was just kind of wrapped around the three ring ropes. Loosely. Kind of very loosely. It was uh, some... It, it was it was not your no-rope barbed wire match you, like you would see in ECW or CZW or anywhere else. Like, Ring of Honor had fucking no-rope barbed wire matches. <laughs> this is just, you know, some nonsense. Let's be honest. Yeah. Let's go wrap a little wire around there. Try not to hurt yourself, boys. What six guys doing stuff? You know, <laughs> Road Warriors and Dusty and the Paris Payne and Ivan Koloff, and they're out there and they're doing some things. And oh gosh, eventually Animal gets a win. But you know what? We have to we have to remind you that Animal was wearing a helmet because he got uh, in the broken orbital bone, and he got kicked in the helmet. The helmet got knocked off, and Animal got beat down after the match, and... Oh, there's a lot of stuff going on there. Yeah, the powers of pain, if I recall correctly, dropped like a fucking barbell on Animal's head, and that led to That's what led to him having the helmet, yes. Yeah. Yeah, so he had the helmet, and they were getting some heat on that, and uh, it was a thing that happened, pretty much, and this was supposed to lead, as I recall, to a series of matches, the Road Warriors, Powers of Pain... And it would have been a series scaffolding of scaffolding matches. matches. Yeah. And the powers of pain were like, well, fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> Which they should have been because who wants, if you're looking at the, like the powers of pain, there's no way you want to do that. No, no. Well, 300 uh, pound we'll muscled up dudes who were, absolutely. 300 pound <laughs> muscled up dudes who were prevalent to muscle tears should not be doing scaffolding matches. I mean, I, so would, I have no problem with powers of pain taking those WF contracts. Absolutely <laughs> not. No. no, God bless you. And again, I would say that most normal people don't need to be doing a fucking scaffolding match anyway and blowing out no. knees like Jim Cornette. But yeah, powers yeah. of pain, man. No, no ill will on them for powder and after that bullshit. No, no, no. That, absolutely. It's like, oh, well, you look at your booking sheets. Like, oh, scaffold match, scaffold. Yeah, you know, WF got a contract offer. Okay, let's do that. Yeah. <laughs> let's, let's peace out. Why not? Yeah. So the, God bless them for making that decision. That's right. The baby face is one. It's a short match, and um, it wasn't good. No, it, it really wasn't. wasn't. And I loved it. Was what it was. I loved Dusty, and I loved the Road Warriors, and everything. But yeah, it's just it was. It wasn't great. So, do we have any more? We had Nikita pull off in a white business suit for an interview. That was something. What about Nikita Koloff with hair? How do you feel? about I that? was always freaked out with Nikita Koloff with hair. Unnatural. Yeah. He had. Well, I mean, this is him coming back from uh, his wife had some uh, some illness, and that's why he went away for a while. And then he came back and he had hair, and uh, smaller. He, he was smaller, and he is going to make a challenge for the future champion, pretty much. So there it is, what it is. I never got into Nikita Koloff of hair. I know you know. I know you're a big Uncle Ivan fan. I know you probably love Nikita, but oh, uh, I, ne- I mean, no, Nikita I never there. liked him with the hair. It felt weird, dude. It is weird. I don't know. But, yeah, but uh, that was what it was. But coming up next, we got a champion. We got an NWA World Tag Team title match. We got Arn Anderson, Tully Blanchard defending against Lex Luger and Barry Windham. And Luger and Windham, oh, man, that's an over tag team right there. People want these guys to. Beat Anderson Blanchard's ass. 
This is another example of you can have a great wrestling match with a great layout over X and a hot crowd and not needing 30 minutes because these fuckers didn't even need 10. No, they didn't. They went just under 10. They went about nine and a half. It felt longer in a good way. And it's, it's fucking great. So, I mean, I, I love this. Uh, the, the best part about this match is not even the match itself, because it is great, but it's what the match leads to. Yes. Because Barry Windham and Lex Luger win the tag team titles. That's right. And then, you know, they later on, they do the um, they do the big Barry heel turn. Yeah. Which it's during a tag match with the Horsemen where Lex Luger gets the fuck beat out of him. Yeah. Continually. He gets the shit just kicked out of him and kicked out of him and kicked out of him. And he eventually gets a tag and Barry kind of comes in and then he turns around, he tags him back in and he just fucks him over. Because I mean the thing you're leaving the thing you're kind of leaving out during the whole time the Luger's getting the fuck beat out of him. J.J. Dillon was selling at the Barry Windham. It's like, oh my Kennedy's. You see this guy is a weak link, man. J.J. was selling at the Barry like this guy is a weak link. He's been leaning the wrong way. And he was just talking to J.J. was talking to Barry the whole match, and eventually Barry just listened. J.J. is quite the businessman. He is. I think I think JJ's a little underrated as a manager, to be honest with you. I, I loved him as the manager. I loved him with his work with Tully Blanchard before and then with the Horsemen. And um I agree, I think he is a bit underrated. I think a lot of people um don't think about him in terms of like great managers, excuse me, and I think a lot of it is too, is a lot of people just haven't either lived through the time or gone back to watch it because his stuff with the Horseman is just always good. His stuff with Tully was always so good. Yeah. It really is. It really is. And people want to tell you, well, you know, Bobby Heenan would have been better in that role. I don't know. I think Bobby Heenan might have overshadowed the guys, too. There's definitely a possibility, Cause Bobby, yeah, because Bobby yeah. was, like, so good. Yeah, he might have overshadowed him a little bit. You need somebody like J.J. in that role just to provide the right balance, just the right balance, just the right balance. But, uh yeah, this match here was some really some really good stuff. <laughs> some really good stuff. And uh, J- now J.J. was at fault in this match because J.J. gets on the apron with the chair. He's trying to set up uh, Luger for the move. And uh, there's a reversal. Arn gets smacked into the chair. Luger rolls him up. We got new tag team champions. And everybody's just going crazy. This crowd goes freaking crazy. I think WWE or anybody would die for a crowd like this. Definitely. And not just today, obviously, because, you know, but any at any point, they're just going freaking bananas, for God's sakes. But just really, 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 really good stuff. And I got to tell you, JJ, you know, causing the downfall here leads me to one of my questions about the next match. Okay. The next match with Ric Flair, it's the first match on TBS. I don't know if this, I don't know if it's first overall match. It's the first match on TBS that's nationally aired. It's Ric Flair versus Sting. This became the rivalry that defined ACW throughout the, its existence. 
But my question here, J.J. Dillon just cost guys tag team championships. Why is he in a shark cage for this match? Contractually agreed to before the match, my friend. You can't break that. But what happened between these guys? What what happens to the, I would assume there are some situations where JJ got involved. I mean, what what was the what was the deal? It, you, it was JJ being JJ and costing. Were there previous matches where he got involved? Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah. Okay, that okay. I, I I'll buy that. There are some house show matches where JJ got involved, and then Sting decided, okay, this guy's be up in a shark cage or whatever. Okay, that's fine. But yes, but so we got forty-five minute time limit for the because it's television, obviously, not a sixty-minute. We got some judges at ringside. That's right. The judges at ringside that I remember being introduced were <laughs> were Patty Mullen, of course, the 1998 pet of the year. We had Jason Hervey, of course. We got Eddie Haskell, and I guess Gary Juster. And Sandy Scott were there just as well. Though I don't remember that, that from the the thing I saw. Yeah, they were they were Gary Jester is definitely there. So was Sandy Scott. Yeah, they, but the the WF never shows that. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's kind of a weird situation. It is what it is. But uh, yeah, Pete with Gary Jester know, over the AEW stuff. Yeah, don't go Jerry Gary Jester. Don't ask Jim Cornette about Gary Jester either. <laughs> Didn't Jim Cornette get Gary Jester in the ROH and that became a whole situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know about all that. All I know is that ring announcer Tom Miller was there. And uh, I don't know about you, Larry, but Tom Miller, one of my favorite ring announcers. He's very good. I like him. He, he is one of my favorite guys. He had a tough time getting that ring from time to time. But I love his induction, introduction of The Nature Boy. Rick Flair! I liked it. You know, as much people love Howard Finkel, as much people want to tell me that, uh, you know, whoever whoever people on pitch get ringer announcers, uh, Tom Miller's up there with me. I like him. Yeah, he's really good, dude. He's, he's Yeah, and he would, he would say some weird stuff like, the ever popular, or, you know, he would say some weird things, and I liked him. Yeah, he would throw in some fun stuff. Yeah, but, um, good stuff. There. This is the NWA Championship match, and it's Flair and Sting, and this is... The famous match where Ric Flair decided he was going to make Sting. Sting became a star. That's right. <laughs> because of that. And this is also another fantastic example of not a match that can go short and be great, but a match that you don't have to win to get over. Right. It is all about booking. Mm-hmm. And the match is a masterclass from Ric Flair. He does everything that Ric Flair does in matches to keep the crowd over and to keep them interested. He does all the little tricks to take advantage on Sting. At no point do you feel that Ric Flair is the overall superior professional grappler. Because while he is the champion, he's constantly taking shortcuts. Yeah. And the other thing is, when Sting does get his chances... Ric Flair sells his ass off. <laughs> Early on in the match, just uh, stuff like when Sting first, uh, he starts to take control and he starts working a bear hug and you just got Flair yelling, oh God, oh God, my back. And he's yeah. just like for a fucking simple bear hug. 
But right. it's the thing of Flair's whole goal in this match is, I know I'm walking out the champion. We're going 45. I need to make this guy. I need challengers. <laughs> and that is the entire goal of this match. And Sting will even say, he said in interviews that he even admits that he felt at times like he had to be dragged to the end because he was not sure. used to going 45 minutes. No, he had then now Bill Watts never booked him to go 45 minutes and nor did anybody else for that matter. Well, I, you know what this I find hilarious is like Bill Watts never booked Sting to go long. But Bill Watts looked at Paul Orndorff back in the day and said, you know, you're a jacked, good-looking motherfucker. You're going 60 every night. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, you know, Sting was in that tag team with Rock at that point. Yeah. And I think Bill Watts might have been a little, he might have been a little slow to the ball in that one. Let's be honest. If, you know, if, if Watts had one more year by Cracky, that's all I'm saying. I don't know. So, but anyway, they... They proceed, just, this match is so well put together. It it comes down to the end, and Sting looks like he has it won because he yep. runs wild. He finally gets the Stinger Splash. He gets the Scorpion Deathlock, and there's about 30 uh-huh. seconds but left. But there's not enough time. That's yeah. right. Flair barely holds out. And it's one of those endings where Sting at first thinks he wins and they have to break the news to him. Nope. Going to the judges and, um, you know, Patty Mullen obviously votes for Ric Flair. Because obviously the Patty Earwood, I mean, why wouldn't she? Gary Gary Juster gives it the Sting. good brother. And then Sandy Scott fucking pussy calls it a draw. Fucking Sandy Scott. What the hell? A draw. Who... Who declares the match a draw? Come on, I'm really glad that they had those judges there. It's like, why the fuck did you do the judges if you were essentially just having them do the time limit draw anyway? And Eddie Haskell just sat there for no reason. Jason Hervey sat there for no reason, too. Like, didn't their votes matter? I mean, they probably didn't, let's be honest. But come on, man. So a couple takeaways (sighs) from this match is that obviously this is no Flair Steamboat in terms of all-time greats. But it was easily best Sting's best singles match to this point. And as we said going into the match, this is the match that you know Sting was getting over. But this was the match that made him a star. And from then on, the people were locked into him because he took Flair to the limit. And kind of like the fan mentality at the time was, you know, if the Stinger had 30 more seconds, Steve... Honestly, I think it had more more of an impact on the WCW fans than the Flair's Steamboat matches did. And I'm not saying, and I'm not saying that Flair's Steamboat matches weren't better; they were better. But I think the I I think this match made more of an impact. Impact it wise, brought yes. Sting up. It brought Sting up to a whole nother level because I mean, as far as those matches, you know, people already knew Ricky Steamboat was great. They need to be told that. But uh, this match brought Sting up to a whole nother level. And Sting became up to that whole nother level for the rest of the existence of this promotion. He became the franchise guy in WWE based off this match, pretty much. Yeah, so again, this is, um, you know, this was on free TV back in the day. And this was an example of... Against WrestleMania. Yes, which... And you know what people were watching. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But this this card, I mean, you have 
a great tag match, an excellent tag match, and then you have this main event, which totally makes Sting, and as Steve said, has a big impact on the company for the years rest, to come. The existence, yes. So Sting was the guy for the rest of the existence. That's it. That's right. He was a made man, and it's yeah. You have like those two little clunker matches, but they are so short that they don't really bother me. It doesn't matter. <laughs> it, it's you get a lot of great on this card and a lot of important stuff. So again, uh, six thousand people in attendance, Steve. Overall, if you're giving this one a score out of ten, what are you giving it? I give a solid. I give a solid uh, eight point five. I make it eight point five because we got to knock off a little bit for the those couple of matches. You know, you had that opening match, kind of a stinker. You had the barbed, barbed wire, wire match, whatever it was. You had Eddie Haskell cutting a promo for some reason. <laughs> I don't know what that was about, but uh, man, I mean, for me, eight point five is a pretty fucking good show. Oh yes, I mean it's a great show. I, I'm I'm around the same ballpark as you. I. I think when like I probably first saw this, I would have rated it higher. Um, but yeah, those um those two matches do take away. But again, Midnight's and Fantastics is excellent. And if you're totally short on time, you watch that one. If you have a good twenty minutes, you can fit in both tag matches and be very happy. Um, but obviously, the Sting and Flair match very vital and important to overall. Um, I'm like I said, I'm with you. I go about 8.5. If you're short on time, skip that first match. Skip the barbed wire match. You'll cut 10 yeah. minutes off the show. You can kill the promos because they're not important. Focus yep. on the quality stuff. But again, if you have to pick and choose, and like I said, if you only have like 20 minutes, you can catch the two tag team matches, and you will be very, very happy, I think. Yeah, and you see Sting versus Flair, and Sting versus Flair sets a table for what WCW end up becoming eventually, where Sting was a top star forever. Franchise. And Ric Flair is top star. He's a franchise player, and Ric Flair's always got to end up getting title belt because he was Ric Flair. But uh, Sting versus Flair was the top feud that that company ever built. It was what it was. Really was. And I, I enjoyed it. I thought it was fucking awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I really... I It's cool to go back and watch that show still because... Those tag matches, like I said, like those are the first things that just jumped out at me at how good they were. Still. That Midnight Fantastic thing, Jesus Christ, that thing stood out to me. Like, holy God, these guys are going fucking crazy. Jim Cornette's throwing things, and we got yeah. fucking tables involved. God, I kind of goddamn, I will, Jim, Jim I, all things tables. I will like, say holy. though that the one thing Cornette knew how to do was when he waffled somebody in the back with that tennis racket. <laughs> It sounded like a goddamn shotgun going off. Uh, Poor Tommy. He even had the cornet fans at ringside too. That's right. Yeah. So, so. some oh, man, and a fantastic course, awesome as well. Just no, oh, good stuff. Can you imagine two good tag team matches like that on any show today? I don't know. Yeah, it's very rare, which is unfortunate because I love tag team wrestling so much. Excuse me, I had to yawn there real quick. But uh, yeah, I'm about like you. I go about 8.5 on this. Uh, looking at the old cagematch.com for comparison, or .net for comparison, yeah. uh, they have uh, 27 votes overall, and the show ends up at about a 7.6 on their scale. Okay, it's a little underrated. Well, you have some Jay Brones in here giving this show a 6.0, and some idiot giving sure. it a 2.0. Sure, because uh, Hulk Hogan wasn't on the show. Here's the best one. The, the 
Honestly, I hate to be contrarian, but this was supposed to be a great wrestling show. It's one of the worst I've ever seen. Let me skip ahead. He bitches about the opener. This was terrible. The Midnight Fantastics was bad. Lots of brawling, overemphasis on the heels being heels with unfair help from the ref, and just a bland (laughs) execution of exchanges all around. Two stars at best. Disagree. Disagree. He also gives two stars for Arn and Tully versus Barry and Lex, Uh, calling it a typical babyface versus heel match. Um, with uh, Luger getting every opportunity to look dominant and no heat with incredibly boring action. Uh, and then for Sting and fucking Flair, this motherfucker <laughs> goes one and three quarter stars. Uh, oh, boy. The wrestling skill on display here was barely noticeable. The match had no story and psychology at all. Really? I'm sorry. Really? Uh, what the fuck show were you watching? I don't know what that guy was doing right there, but don't know about all that. Oh, so I'm man. just letting everybody uh. know you can go to Cage March, CageMatch.net, and mock this fella. He is a horrible person, and he should feel bad for his review of uh, Class of Champions One. I mean, I like to I like to believe everybody has a you know their whole opinion, and it should be fair and everything, but sometimes there are just bad takes and some people should not get to have takes at all. Well, did he give Jimmy Garvin and Mike Rotunda four stars? Is all, no, he actually gave play. it just over one star. But I was just going to say, I mean, maybe they had different preference and professionalized my songs. I don't know. Oh, man. But uh, that classic champions one, it is definitely a thumbs up show. Like I said, you can skip the two single star matches that are nothing. You watch those two tags. You watch Flair and Sting. That is the meat of that show. You know, the- and you can see why WF got so pissed over that. Sir, we saw WF got so mad over that particular show. They got they weren't happy. Yeah, and, and they you were know, not because I mean, you compare Clash of Champions one to like Mania four. I think if I was doing scores out of ten, Mania four maybe gets a three. Oh boy, that's a rough, rough show. Get through. a lot of a lot of one and two star specials, and I think it peaked <laughs> at uh, Savage and DiBiase, which I might have given generous gentlemen's three to. Yeah, then maybe if that yeah, it's yeah, yeah. So which it should have gone a lot better considering it's involved, but you know, eh, eh, booking you had know. to tell stories, Steve. You gotta tell stories, man. We're here to put smiles on people's faces, goddammit. And have the Hulkster out there. and Although, I won't, I won't complain about that because WrestleMania 4-5, to Savage and Hogan is the single best year-build feud WWE ever did. It is. It is, and I've been watching a lot of that lately on primetime wrestling. And I gotta tell you, I've seen a lot of, uh, over the years, when I was reading people commenting on the feud... Certain internet writers, I've been seeing people saying, oh, well, Savage was obviously right, blah, blah, blah. They was obviously right. The way I've been watching, it's like, no, Savage was wrong. Savage was a heel. For God's sakes, why are you trying to tell me? Some people don't remember that time, Steve. They weren't there. Well, I mean, I think these people were there. And I think these people have a bad perspective on women, to be honest with you. Well, I wouldn't surprise you. <laughs> Is all I'm saying. <laughs> That's all I'm saying. I don't know. This guy, I think these people have kind of a warped, a warped perspective on life is why I was getting at there. I don't know. 
kind of weird. Not surprising, but uh, that is the weirdest thing I learned today was that the new Leave It to Beaver lasted for four seasons. That that's weird to me. That's actually How just that scary. Happen? It really is. Girl Meets Rolling went three seasons. Like Jesus Christ. Oh man. So wow. Steve, that's gonna wrap us up on our retro review there of Clash of Champions one, and um. We're probably going to try to fit in some more of these because that was Steve's idea, and uh, they're fun to look back on, obviously. Clash of the Champions was uh, what I grew up on with WCW Wrestling. We got uh, a few more ago. Yeah. So. And let's hope that eventually we can have some actual wrestling entertainment. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of what we've been seeing. Well, we'll find out for sure, and uh, <laughs> hopefully things will eventually change and get better. Yes, I uh, we can't help but get, but get better from here. Unless we are, in fact, in the darkest timeline. Alrighty, welcome back. We're going to hit up another retro review tonight. Continuing our look at the Clash of the Champions series with Clash of the Champions 2. Joining me is Steve Cook. Steve, how are you, my friend? Oh, just uh, doing fantastic. Good to hear, my friend. So, yes, uh, we've already done Clash of the Champions, uh, the original. We're going to do Clash 2 now which took place in uh, Miami, Florida. About 2,400 people were in attendance for the smaller event. Tony Schiavone and Bob Cottle on the call, Steve. Miami Mayhem. Yes, it was That's uh, right. one of uh, Dusty's many uh, you know, great alliterative names for shows. So we start off with the um, U.S. title on the line with uh, Barry Windham defending it against Brad Armstrong and before we get into the match, just let me say, I love Barry Windham and I love Brad Armstrong. I think Barry Windham is, he was so great before his knee injuries caught up with him and he gained some weight. In the late 80s to the very beginning of the 90s, he was probably one of the easy top three workers in North America during his prime. And he's always a guy that when I think about wrestlers today that are of that frame, like a taller, lankier wrestler or just a taller wrestler who wants to focus on footwork. I always think Barry Windham is a guy they should study. Definitely. I mean, as far as peaks of a wrestling career go, Barry Windham had one of the top peaks, like, you know, from, from like 88 to 91 or so. I mean, he was one of the, one of the best workers out there, a guy who people always have a lot of high expectations for. And it seemed like he was going to be a top star for a long, long time. But, uh, once he had that knee injury, I think it was 93. And, uh, you know, it's right after, I remember he turned heel again. He had the NWA title run. He, he went away for a while. He came back uh, for a random match in 94 and then disappeared. And his career just fell off a cliff after that. He became a stalker. He was uh, Blackjack Wyndham there for a minute. And uh, he's a West Texas redneck, but he wasn't the star West Texas redneck. Barry Wyndham just never, never lived up to his expectations. Once he injured that knee and got a little bigger things just kind of fell apart for him and i do you know why that is is there was there a specific reason why did barry just kind of did he just lose his interest get lazy like what what do you think i i think it might have just been a perfect storm of a lot of bad things you know just the, the combination of the knee injury and maybe putting on the weight and the fact that he had that horrible WWF run afterwards. Yeah, that, and that was killed off when yeah his family got in that counterfeiting business with uh yeah as his, his father and Kendall got busted for that and that was right around he's in WWF and 
you can see why the WDF one really too interested in pushing him while it was going on. But yeah, just uh, bad times, bad times. Yeah, but I always loved Barry, and not that they were the exact same body type. But I remember somebody used to ask me like, because um, I used to like get on big cast, you know, big cast for not being very good. You know, like, well, what would your fucking great advice would be for a big cast? I'm like, lock that motherfucker in a room for six months watching Barry Wyndham tapes. Well, there you go. I mean, especially, yeah, like you said, from that time period, there were a few in the few in pro wrestling that were better during that particular time. And unfortunately, it fell off the cliff for him at certain points. And Brad Armstrong is a guy who was always really solid in the ring, just really, really good, really good professional wrestler as far as, you know, doing things in the wrestling ring. But for whatever reason, and even though from all accounts, Brad Armstrong had a great personality outside the ring, was one of the funniest guys in the locker room all that good stuff, it just never really translated from on, t- on television. No, it really did. It didn't. And uh, like you said, I mean, Brad Armstrong was a really, really good worker as far as just being a professional wrestler. I mean, inside the ropes, the dude did everything you wanted him to do. But yeah, he just, he never had the personality despite any of the 19 gimmicks he had throughout his career. And yeah, it's just, uh, it, I mean, it's a shame, but I mean, you know, unfortunately, Steve, I mean, not everybody is going to be a star. You need mechanics still, and that that was Brad Armstrong. I mean, you know, Brad was really good. I liked him a lot. He was a guy that throw in there. He pretty much had good, you know, for the most part, he had good matches with everybody. Rarely had a bad match, and that is our opening match. Barry Wyndham defending against Brad Armstrong. Um, overall, they they got a lot of time. They got like 14 minutes. And the finish is really fun because Brad Armstrong makes the big rally. He uh, he hits um, he does the whole House of Fire gimmick, hits drop kicks. He hits the uh, the big flying high cross, goes for another one. But Barry Windham, that tricky old bastard, rolls through into the Iron Claw for the pin. It's a cool finish. Um, and I think the best thing I can say about the match is honestly, while a bit um, headlock heavy and bland in the middle they actually bought brad armstrong for a bit there yeah i was gonna say the match uh was a little slow to start it looked like they're going for even longer time than their schedule for it that headlock felt like it took a couple of years there's a, yeah there's not a lot of stuff going on there for a while but uh yeah a cool finish though I I'm a big fan of the Iron Claw. I don't think that I don't think that move gets enough respect, and uh, I think somebody in wrestling I bring that back. Oh, Lance Archer does use it from time to time. So, well, there you go. I forgot. Yeah, old Lance does have the. Uh, does he have the? He doesn't have the glove there, does he? No, he, he doesn't he need a glove. glove. He needs a glove. Everybody should be wearing gloves now, for God's sakes. There you go. All this virus stuff going on. Come on now. So, Lex Luger arrives in his limousine. And he gets the absolute shit kicked out of him by the four horsemen. <laughs> yes, yes, he did. Uh, this was this was right after they had shown the uh, the contract signing with uh, Lex Luger and Ric Flair for the upcoming Bash on the Beach. Uh, they're on the uh, the Blackhawk yacht. It was I think it's the yacht uh, for the Chicago Blackhawks owner, who is one of Ric Flair's good friends. And they even mentioned it like later on. I remember in like mid nineties nitros. When they're at the United Center, they'd mentioned like Ric Flair's connection to the Blackhawks owner and all that stuff. So, so he had the contract signing. Lex Luger had the white suit. He kind of had a. It felt more. It felt more like Don Johnson when he's on the boat. But then once they got to this thing where he showed up at the arena, 
I don't know. The whole white thing with the pink tummer bun didn't really work for me, and it didn't work for the horse either. They beat the crap out of that man. That's I think good. he got his ass beat solely for his poor fashion choices. I think that's exactly what happened because Ric Flair is a man of fashion. He's a man of taste. He saw Alex Luger earlier in the day wearing that white suit with the cummerbund, and he, he he was not having it. He was not having that. It's like, guys, we got to take care of this. That's what they did. They beat the shit out of him. It's great. I can imagine if Tony Schiavone would have went up to Ric Flair and said, what's causing all this? He would have said, look at that fucking suit! Yeah, right. <laughs> uh, and, and we'll see you later on the show. I'll just mention it right now. Freaking Dr. Death Steve Williams comes out there, and he's talking. I think he's talking to JR or somebody. And he's out there. He's got the white suit. With, he's wearing the white Michael Jackson gloves, too. I mean, I don't, uh, that just does not feel like a Dr. Death type of uh, order of the man. There were some fashion choices on this show, Steve. Miami Mayhem. I think, I think they all had the Don Johnson kind of thing going on. I don't know. I don't know what the deal was. So next up, we had the U.S. Tag Team title match, the Fantastics defending against the Sheep Herders. Uh, these two, we've talked about this in the past, these two had a great chemistry at points, some great bl- bloody brawls, and um, unfortunately, this was not quite one of those. No. This, no, was, this not was not a, don't get me wrong, it's not a bad match. Um, they, uh, the Fantastics retain a little over 17 minutes. It... Felt a little, I guess the best way to describe it, a little long, a little awkward at times. Um, it didn't seem like the Sheep Herders were really into being super cooperative during this match. Maybe they were upset about the booking, I don't know. It just, um, it felt really awkward at times. It's really solid, a little longer than it should have been. I think you shave off three or four minutes and tighten it up a little bit, and the Sheep Herders maybe... Work a little more like they've worked in other matches with the Fantastics. It's way better. Not a bad piece of business, but uh, not the classics they had in the past either. Yeah, if you're looking for a classic Fantastic Sheepers match, you want to get a Crockett Cup. You want to get some of their, you know, crazy uh, hardcore type stuff in UWF and places like that. Uh, this was just kind of, uh, you know, a uh, traditional uh, wrestling match. Not not bad or not bad or anything, but. Uh, just kind of, just kind of there. Fantastics, uh, you know, and they're they're coming off that big match at the the first clash with Midnight Express, so they're they were on a pretty good streak at this point. But uh, I don't know, this, this match didn't really do a whole lot for me. Yeah, and it's just really weird considering the chemistry that they have um, had. But um, I there also must have been th- something going on behind the scenes. There must have been somebody must have said something to somebody. Somebody. Yeah, and I I feel the need to point out again for those of you that haven't watched a lot of Fantastics matches, you need to hit up the network, go watch Fantastics matches, also revel in um, Bobby Fulton's wild southernness in, in these matches because he's so good at what he does, but also the fact that Tommy Rogers probably really arrived about 11 years before he should have. Yeah, because <laughs> he could have fit in with some of the, he could have been fit in with some of his cruiser guys just fine. He could have fit in with, right with uh, Malenko and Eddie and those guys too. Oh yeah, Malenko, Eddie, Sean Waltman, Ray. I, he would have worked with a lot of guys, but if he would have came later on. But I mean, yeah, it's um, it's really funny because on the surface, the Fantastics feel like they shouldn't work as well as they did. But sometimes those kind of slightly oddball tag teams work because Bobby Fulton is your southern fired-up wrestler, you know? There's nothing fancy about him. He's not in particularly great shape. 
Then Tommy Rogers is just like in fucking fantastic shape and he's doing all kind of fucking great light heavyweight shit. And it's, yeah, it's uh, a lot of fun. So I would call this match maybe slightly better than the first one, though, but not by much. They're both solid opening matches. Yeah, yeah. So, Leading into uh, some stuff. <laughs> yeah. so, next up, we have the Varsity Club. Yes. Which is Rick Steiner and the newly turned heel Mike Rotundo facing off with the United Brothers of Ronnie and Jimmy Garvin with Precious at ringside. Now, we hold have, on a second. We have to talk about the Garvin's uh, relationship here. Were they were they sold as brothers? Is that supposed to be the gimmick? Well, yeah, that was they were, yeah. That's how they were sold, yeah. Okay, because I want to say, wasn't weren't the wasn't uh, there's some kind of relationship between Ryan and Jimmy, which I'm gonna have to look up now because I they weren't brothers. There, there's something else going on there. I'm gonna look this up while yeah. you talk. I don't think they were real brothers. Yeah, it's just but no, they, they were they were brothers on TV like Edge and Christian. Oh, okay, like that. Yeah. Because they did, uh, there was the the one angle where I was about, uh, they beat the shit out of Jimmy and broke his face. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, but yeah, that's a, but uh, yes, yeah, you brought him up earlier. Dr. Death Steve Williams is on commentary because he's feuding with the Varsity Club. Kevin Sullivan is locked in a cage at ringside and Precious <laughs> holds the key, which this is a very, very Dusty Rhodes gimmick right here. Oh, okay, okay, I got it. Uh, Jimmy was actually uh, Ronnie Garvin's stepson. Oh, well, there you that's go. That's what happened there. That, that, that's that's right, right. Ronnie mar- married uh, Jimmy's uh, mother, so there you have it. Yeah, I, I knew there was a relation. I knew they weren't brothers, but yeah, I couldn't remember what the hell it was. So good research, Steve. Stepson, there we go, yeah. I was a little confused for a second. I didn't know if he was, like, Precious's father or something, but no, that wasn't the case. Uh, so these two teams proceed to have a 13-minute wrestling match. It is perfectly solid there's nothing really bad about it um jimmy garvin gets the big hot tag at the end wins it with the old brain buster um but the whole focus at the end is on kevin sullivan and precious because precious gets way too close to the cage which allows kevin sullivan to taunt her he gets the key away and he unlocks himself he begins to assault her, which leads to Dr. Death Steve Williams leaving the announce table to make the stay, the, the big save. The faces clear out the varsity club in the ring. Precious leaves on her own, and it's a really weird ending to a perfectly okay match. Yeah, this angle is just bad. I think we talked, we talked uh, a while back about how the whole varsity club deal with Kevin Sullivan didn't make any sense. And the feud with uh, Precious and Jimmy Garvin didn't make a whole lot of sense. Nothing Kevin Sullivan was doing at this point made a whole lot of sense to me. And uh, I did like how they reused the cage gimmick that they had J.J. Dillon up in the first clash. I'm sure that's the same cage they dragged to that arena. I'm sure it was. They just didn't bother to raise it that time, unfortunately. Because they had to have Kevin and Precious doing their... I don't know what they were, if they were, if they were like uh, telepathing or what the heck they were doing, but... Uh, yeah, just weird stuff uh, that uh, I, yeah. The wrestling was perfectly fine, but the gimmickry and angle stuff around it was kind of a waste of time. Yeah, unfortunately. It was very focused on Kevin Sullivan and Precious, and then, like, the Varsity Club thing was always, like you said, it's always really, really weird, so. 
Next up, we had Al Perez with Gary Hart. Gotta love some Gary Hart, Steve. <laughs> the playboy, Gary Hart. Right. Facing off with, no offense to him, a man at this point who is a shell of him, former se- his former self, Nikita Koloff. And I love Nikita Koloff, but he He lost was... 50 pounds and he gained hair. Yeah. So you have Nikita, who wasn't what he was. Al Perez, I did like. I thought Al Perez was a good worker. He Again, he was not great. He was not a big star. He did a lot of good st- uh, stuff in um, Mid-South, but at this point in his career, he was starting to fall off a bit. So they book him with Nikita Koloff, which sounds like a recipe for disaster at this time frame. Yeah. And then you watch the match and you realize it's a disaster at this time frame because they go about 12 minutes. It's not good. Al Perez controls. Nikita makes the comeback at the end. And then for reasons, Larry Zabisco arrives and attacks for a disqualification at about 12 minutes. Larry Zabisco, I you know, you know the connection between Al Perez and Larry Zabisco goes way back. You know, Gary Hart and Larry Zabisco go back to their days together in that one that one territory over by Albuquerque or something, you know. Cuz you know, I think Larry was a perennial Western States Heritage champion, hence the connection between him and Al Perez, and hence the connection of Gary Hart, and I just made all that shit up, but you know, it sounds probably sounds better than whatever they actually sold it as. Yeah. It's um it's not a good match, Steve. It's pretty bad. There's not much you can say for it, to be honest with you. Al Perez, uh, one of those guys who had a really good look, had a lot of potential, never quite lived up to it for whatever reason. You know, it just it just happens this way. Sometimes people just don't don't make it. And then uh, Nikita, you know, Nikita had uh, just a couple of years before looked like he was going to be one of the top stars in the business. Had the bald head, the big uh, big physique. Looked like a monster because he pretty much was a monster at that point. But uh, then some, uh, you know. Things happened in Nikita's life uh, on a personal level that uh, weren't so great, and uh, you know, after after certain things went down with uh, you know problems with the family and whatnot, uh, not the Koloff family, mind you, Nikita's actual family, but uh, things were never the same for Nikita after that, as far as uh, certainly as far as pro wrestling goes. And eventually, he did find uh, he found uh, more purpose. So good for him on that regard. But uh, yeah, this was this was past the point where Nikita Koloff was going to be a superstar. Unfortunately, because I always thought, I mean, I really always thought Nikita, despite the fact that nobody's ever going to classify him as a great worker, but he definitely had the look, he had a good charisma about him, a good ring presence, and I, was, I always... He's Mitch Goldberg, I think he'd say. Yeah, kind of in a lot of ways. Yeah. Very much so. And just like, but there were times where he could step up, he did some good stuff with Flair, he had a good series of matches with Magnum TA... And I always kind of like, my big fantasy booking was always that he would leave the NWA and Uncle Ivan would go with him as his manager and they would go to the WWF and then they could do a hot title program with Uncle Ivan, the former WWF champion, bringing in his nephew to thwart Hulk Hogan and challenge for the championship. Yeah. I always thought that that would have been a good piece of business, but obviously um, that did not happen. And um, when we talk in Clash 3, basically the reason is Nikita Koloff's then wife got very ill. He left the business to take care of her. And his uh, focus, like Steve said, was not on wrestling for a very long time. And 
you know, what what could have been? A lot of things, what could have been? You know, I brought up Magnum TA. What could have been with Magnum TA had he not gotten in the accident? Yeah, I mean, we've, we've talked about guys in the show, like, uh, you know, guys who look like they're going to be the next big thing in the business, but just didn't happen for whatever reason. Guys like uh, Barry Windham, guys like Nikita Koloff for completely different reasons. Speaking of Magnum TA, I want to bring this up. The, we're, I want to talk about two names real quick before you hit this main event. Magnum TA was always rumored to be Crockett's answer to trying to create a Hulk Hogan-like figure, a big star back in the day. And the rumor was, before he had that accident, that that was going to be the plan. Now, obviously, Steve, it's very hard to guess and play what if, but do you think Magnum TA would have been the right guy to try that with, and do you think he could have been that? I wouldn't fault them for trying that. I mean, he had a he had a good look. He was uh, solid enough in the ring. I mean, he was working with some really great wrestlers at that point who could uh, who could teach him things and whatnot. And you saw the matches he had for a little, like Tully Blanchard, and had matches of Flair and guys like that. And he, like I said, he looked like looked like the Marlboro Man. Had a nice mustache, and yeah, so there's definitely some potential there. Do I think that he would have been as, like next Hulk Hogan? I I kind of have to balk. I kind of have to, you know, I have to kind of pump the brakes. Oh, I probably shouldn't have said pump the brakes, should I? That's That, that was bad. <laughs> oh. Yeah. yeah, I know, right? But, uh, no, I, I, I don't think that Magnum would have quite been on the same level as Hulk Hogan as being, like, you know, the top baby face in the history of professional wrestling. I mean, it, it's tough to have, you know, there, there aren't many guys. I mean, like Hogan, Austin, I mean, like in, in that rarefied air. With Magnum TA, I mean, I mean, for doesn't the Magnum TA, did people during the 80s not really hear Magnum TA and, you know, Magnum PI? Didn't people just kind of, people didn't think that was lame? Doesn't that seem a little lame? I, I, mean, I, I just think it was a product of the time. It was very 80s. Yeah, I mean, but it just, it does sound like a knockoff of the TV show. And, yeah, I mean, TA was a... He was a decent promo, but he wasn't like I never saw any Magnum TA promos where he was like talking to people into the building like Ric Flair would. So I, I agree, I and know. and on the on this, I I mean I think Magnum TA could have been a big major star for Crockett, but I agree it's hard to say that somebody could be at the level of the next Hogan because the Hulk Hogan thing was just such a perfect storm. And it's hard to capture that, and or recapture that. And it's hard. You you can't just say we're gonna try to make a Hulk Hogan, because it doesn't work. I mean, look look at WWE, Steve. They mm-hmm. tried to make Cena and Orton the Rock and Stone Cold so many times. Yep. They tried to make that feud on the level of Rock and Austin, and you can't just say it's gonna be Rock and Austin because again, Rock and Austin a perfect storm of how it happened and how they got over. And these are these were special guys like Hulk Hogan. And again, you don't have to like Hulk Hogan. You can think Hulk Hogan is a piece of shit for all you want. That's not the argument we're making here. The fact is, Hulk Hogan was charismatic as all fuck. He had a formula. He made a ton of money. He was over. He drew ratings. He put people in the building. He sold merchandise. And you can't just say that you're going to make somebody that guy. And uh, I will also point out that uh, even if Magnum TA gets that next level and becomes like the big super megastar next Hulk Hogan, I 
I don't know if that even cures all the problems that were facing Jim Crockett Promotions at this point because you'd still have. I don't think that, that would fix the mis- the mismanagement and some of their stuff they had going on where they wound up in the hole and pretty much had to sell things off. And the way things were backstage as well, I mean, let's face it, uh, when you give certain wrestlers certain certain booking power, like when Dusty Rhodes writes a show, and as much as he likes Magnum TA, I mean, I do you see Dusty in that time period taking a backseat for too well, long? I mean, no. I mean, look at the time frame, Steve. I mean, Dusty had linked himself at the hip with Magnum TA. Right. Because he knew he was going to be a star. Dusty always would have been involved. So, yeah, it's – and the mismanagement thing you're probably right about too because there was just so much going on and, yeah, it's – yeah. Again, he could have became a major star, but would it have cured everything? Highly doubtful. But it's a big what if. It's one of those big what ifs, Steve, it, around the – when you think about the late 80s, I think the other big what if is David Von Erich. Mm-hmm. Cause David, or the, really, Von Erichs in general. Yeah, but I mean, David was always the guy you heard that was going to be the big star. Harley Race loved him. The St. Louis people loved him. The NWA, he was the one that they were going to back for an NWA title run. And then, you know, David unfortunately dies in Japan, allegedly due to natural causes. A lot of controversy about that. And, I mean, it's a very unfortunate situation. I'm not trying to make light of it, but... Yeah, the late 80s, when it comes to those what-ifs, Magnum TA and uh, David Von Erich are right up there, man. Yeah, and with those guys falling by the wayside, I mean, there was, there was, it was always going to be Hulk Hogan. I think Hulk would have been the, still been a soft star at the end of the day, but it is kind of interesting stuff just to kind of throw out there. And I'm sure the, uh, the Jim Crockett promotions would have liked having Magnum TA on this card. And they probably, if uh, if they get their teeth in David Von Erich and get him out of world class, they probably like to have them around too. And may may carry Kevin or, you know, that's yeah. it's fun to think about. And the other thing is not even talking about approaching um, Hogan levels, but I mean, let's look at it just in the scheme of Jim Crockett promotions. Could they have even surpassed Flair at all? Mm. Because I mean, despite the fact that yeah. You know, Ric Flair was obviously just the superior worker, but Ric Flair always had a wave of popularity, whether he was heel or babyface. You know how many times that that Jim Crockett promotion slash WCW tried to move on from Ric Flair? And we're coming up on a time period where they tried to move on from Ric Flair. They had Lex Luger there. They had Sting there. They had a couple They had a couple guys where they thought, okay, these guys are going to be the future. They're going to surpass Ric Flair. We're going to put Ric Flair out of the pasture. And it sounded like a great idea on paper, but that, that did not happen. And even, you know, going further into the 1990s, they still wanted to put Flair out of the pasture, and it just never happened. Flair just, uh, you know, the cream rises to rises to the top, I guess you could say. And no matter how many times they tried to force Ric Flair down, especially, you know, especially in that southern, that southern market, that fan base, Ric Flair always rose to the top whether they liked it or not. He was, and it's... um. Yeah, I mean, to put it quite frankly, I mean, Ric Flair was God in the Crockett territory. He really mm-hmm. was. So, but our main event uh, saw the NWA World Tag Team titles on the line with Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard, a team we love, Steve, defending yeah. against Dusty Rhodes and Sting. 
Speaking of Dusty attaching himself to, uh, to a big <laughs> to <star>. guys, yeah. <laughs> How about, you know, Dusty, we never said Dusty was an idiot. Dusty was a smart guy. He knew what he was doing. No, and, and we love Dusty, but I mean, <laughs> yeah. you have to call it what it is. Yeah, I mean, he's du- attaching himself to a new star. And du- <laughs> du- and we we can admit, Steve, Dusty had some tremendous booking ideas at times, but Dusty also laid a lot of eggs. Uh huh. Like any booker, so um. I don't remember the Dusty Rhodes and Sting tag team lasting very long either. No. So right, um, that kind of, uh, went away pretty quick. So you have this match, and on paper, Steve, this looks like a really good to potentially great match. And it does. I'm, you know, I'm liking this match, and it starts off good, and they're kind of amping up as we get near the 11 minute mark. The match feels like it's really just getting going. Dusty gets the hot tag. He cleans house. And then Barry Windham and Ric Flair arrive. Yeah. For just the fucking wet fart of a DQ. Right, right when things were getting going. And I was I was getting really into it. And the thing is, Dusty and Sting weren't a great tag team because they weren't a regular tag team all the time. But they had enough charisma and hot spots that Arn and Tully could work with them, and they could have had a great match. But instead, it's just a... Uh, it ends up being a backdrop to make sure you guys know the horsemen are assholes. Yeah. yeah and they're building up the Barry Windham's Dusty Rhodes program, and uh, that was a pretty badass call that Barry put on Dusty there, like on the floor, with the blood coming out of Dusty. I thought that was pretty good stuff. And Sting in the crappy album inside the ring. So it was a nice little beatdown to end the show. Like you, like you said, the the match kind of kind of got cut off before it was going to start getting really good. I guess it's one of those situations. Say, well, we're out of time. We got we got to go home, guys. <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, death taxes and Sting getting the shit kicked out of him by the four horsemen, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, Sting and Dusty both made a living of doing that. That's right. So, I think Dusty got a couple more comebacks, but you know. <laughs> so that is Clash of the Champions 2, Steve. Final thoughts and a score out of 10 from you, my friend. Well, I mean, with the Clash of the, the first Clash of Champions was one of those classic shows, and uh, frankly, this one was uh, no, not the best sequel. Not the best sequel. There's some some decent some decent work, some uh, pretty okay matches. Unfortunately, uh, the the uh, the booking for a lot of it kind of kind of holds it down a bit. I mean, as great as that horseman beatdown of Lex Luger is, and there's some good good spots, but there's also stuff like uh, Kevin Sullivan and Precious, and there's Larry Zbyszko running out. There's just some uh, iffy stuff going on. I think I'd probably have to. I'd probably go a little low on this one, probably around the five range or so. Yeah, I actually agree. I I have it marked on as a five here as well. It's a, it's a unfortunately a below average show. The best stuff is solid throughout, and there's a, some bad. And as you brought up, the booking doesn't help it. Um, definitely suffered from the sequel curse on this one. Could not. I mean, obviously it was going to be hard to live up the the first clash because you had two great tag matches. You had the Sting and Flair match, and it's just. Even if you don't look back on um, one with some rose-tinted glasses because of the historical significance of Flair and Sting, 
it's just a flat out better wrestling show. That's a great show. And this one is just unfortunately below average for several reasons. I go a five as well. Of note, the old cage match has this one ranked culminative score through the voters as a five point uh, six nine, so five point seven. Yeah, that's it's just kind of missing that one or two, one match or something, something that just really kind of kick up to the next level. Like if one of these matches, if the Horsemen versus Dusty and Sting had been a bit better, if the Fantastics and Sheepers have their usual type of match. Or even if uh, Armstrong and Wyndham gets a little bit better, I think you're talking about a much better show overall. Exactly. If that main event maybe goes five more minutes, even if they do the DQ, I think it turns the quality up. And, yeah, again, if the Sheep Herders and... um, Because, again, I talked about you can cut four or five minutes from that Sheep Herders fantastic match, tighten it up, probably becomes a lot better. If you just make those two changes right there, I think it bumps it up at least to an average show at the very least. So... Um, but that is Clash 2, Steve, and I, I know we talked about formatting here. We're just going to kind of transition into Clash 3 here because things are going well. Clash 3, live from Albany, Georgia, reported attendance, 3,700. Good old Jim Ross and Bob Cottle on the call, Steve. Yeah, and you also had uh, Tony Schiavone and Ric Flair serving as kind of the host, if you will. They're sitting up, in a, up, in a, they're sitting up above the crowd and... Flair and I had some good contributions there in that role. You know, Tony and these Tony and these heels always seem to work well together. Yeah, it's funny how that works, doesn't it? He's kind of made a career out of that. Yeah, good for him. So we open things up with the NWA TV title on the line. Champion Mike Rotundo with Kevin Sullivan defending against our good friend Steve Brad Armstrong. Yeah, Brad's back for another opening match here, a television title match, which I was surprised was a 20-minute time limit because I was used to, you know, his TV title matches always. I always remember them being 15 minutes, Larry. Yeah, it was all, I thought it was usually always uh, 10 to 15. I think that uh, when they did the Clash, though, they did, like, the special expanded time limit like they do on pay-per-view from time to time. Ah, okay. So, but, um, yeah, I mean, this is... um. Mike Rotunda was one of those guys that when he was motivated, he was a good worker. Like, he never did things that were generally bad, but there were times where he seemed really unmotivated. But when Mike Rotunda wanted to go, he could go. He was a good worker. And we talked about Brad Armstrong already. I think Brad Armstrong was a really good worker. And when you put him in there with somebody that wanted to work, good times happened, you know? And um, they go for the time limit draw here. Um, Mike Rotundo desperately pulling away from him at the end just to try to keep the title. And I found it to be a good opening match. And uh, the commentary treats it kind of like a big moral victory for Brad Armstrong going to the time limit with the champion. But the fact is, they never capitalized on it afterwards. It was just another, let's put Brad Armstrong out there for a quality performance and then do nothing with him. I was going to ask you what Brad Armstrong did after this uh, series of clash shows where he gets the, he gets a U.S. title shot in one show and then he's uh, he gets the draw of Mike Rotundo in this show. I, and I was trying to remember, uh, you know, I'm sure I probably I was thinking like, well, did this lead to anything bad for a big for Brad Armstrong? And uh, it didn't. WCW Saturday Night Tag Matches with Tim Horner. Well, there you go, the old White Lightning, the uh, Lightning Express. So I guess that's something. That's right. That's uh, not really, but. Uh, the one thing that the one thing that kind of bugged me, and I don't know if it's really even a flaw of the match per se, it just kind of goes against kind of what I'm kind of used to. The whole finish sequence where it's the champion that's desperately trying to cover the challenger. 
I mean, usually in these scenarios, it's the, you know, the champion always has a championship advantage where, you know, you have to beat him. He does not have to beat you, which is the psychology I've been growing accustomed to over the past 30 years or so. Yet in this particular instance, uh, Mike Rotundo is out here working like he's a freaking challenger trying to win the title. And he's also the the bad guy that slashed the heel. So kind of, uh, it was kind of weird. It was, it was weird to me. I'm not saying it's bad. It's just kind of weird. I, it, it comes off a little bit odd when you're conditioned to the reverse, like you said. But I kind of found it like slightly refreshing because Rotunda was in this weird part where he wasn't really motivated a lot of the time. So I found it really refreshing. But um, I, I thought again, I thought it was a good opener. And consi- I mean, again, this is no disrespect to Brad Armstrong because I really like Brad Armstrong. I thought it was kind of surprisingly dramatic because I, I felt that people were really into Brad Armstrong kind of almost winning there. And, I mean, that's that's sign of a good work when, you know, everybody knows Brad Armstrong isn't winning that title. <laughs> no, no, apparently not because uh, you had to keep that Captain Mike Rotunda build going and they're building that feud with him and Dr. Death, uh, which, uh, if I remember correctly, that leads to Dr. Death eventually joining the varsity club, I think. Yeah, and uh, Rick yeah. Steiner leaving the Varsity Club, I believe, as well. So, it's uh, yeah, it's really odd. Um, so, next up, uh, the Sheep Herders are back, uh, coming off the last show, and they face uh, Steve Williams and Nikita Koloff. Yeah, before we get to that, we have to cover, we have to cut right back to this Kevin Sullivan business because we, we saw clips of Jimmy Garvin getting his leg broken. The old cinder block right. on top of the leg. And uh, so that is, that is it for Jimmy Garvin. He was gone for a while, and eventually when he came back, he was Jimmy Jam Garvin with the Michael PSAs. That's right. He upgraded. So, yeah, I mean, as that feud just kept going on forever and ever, and Kevin Sullivan gets the last laugh. That's right. How about that? That was unexpected, right? It was, it kind of was, but, I mean, there you go. It's a old NWA booking, Steve. So we have the Sheep Herders facing off with – Dr. Death, Steve Williams, and Nikita Koloff. And, what about a tag team? Yeah, and here, here's the thing. They they go 17 minutes, and you're probably thinking, well, Jesus Christ, the Fantastic Smash went about this long. This is probably horrible because Nikita's, like, no good. And the thing is, is I'm not, I'm not going to lie to you, you're wrong. This is a surprisingly good wrestling match. They clicked way, way more than I thought it would. It's really fun early on because Steve Williams and Nikita Koloff just fucking bully and brutalize the sheep herders around for a while. Doing what they're supposed to do. And then the sheep herders kind of make a comeback. Rip Morgan gets involved. And at the end of the day... Nikita puts, uh, I believe he puts Luke away with the big Russian sickle. and Oh, it's tough to tell the difference between those, yeah. Yeah, and honestly, I thought this was a good match on par with the opener, man. I'm not going to lie. I was not it, expecting good things going into it because I didn't remember much from it, but color me surprised. It was certainly not, yeah, not as bad as one would expect looking at the particular match listing, but at the same time, I mean... You know, the, the Clash 2 match aside, the Sheepherders were actually a pretty darn good tag team during this time period. But, I mean, I think a lot of people do forget that because we kind of tend to remember the Bushwhackers with Luke and Butch and all that stuff. And, you know, once WDF, once they went to WDF, they went for the money. Good for them. And 
I don't hate on them for that at all. And sometimes you forget that, but it makes you forget that, uh, you know, these guys are actually a really good tag team. And you can kind of see it uh, showcased here by uh, the way they did some really good work against two guys in Williams and Koloff who were not a regular tag team. I don't know if they, I don't know if they ever, do they ever have a match besides this? I have no idea. I mean, I you might know better than me. <laughs> I don't know, man. But again, I was shocked that this was good because I was just was not expecting much from it. Yeah, but but at the same time, of course, Steve Williams, uh, also a guy who shines in a really in a pretty in a, in a tag team. You saw you remember the Miracle Violence connection and stuff oh, yes. like that, and uh, you know, and Nikita Koloff, as much as diminished as he was during this time period, you could still get something out of him if you put the right people with him. And Luke and Butch had their working shoes on here. So they were happier for this show than they were against the Fantastics. Not sure what happened. Uh, may uh, may they well, may got uh, some, may something good happen between Clash Two and Clash Three. That's right. So next up, Steve, we have a no disqualification match with Dusty Rhodes versus Kevin Sullivan. Yeah, and uh, there is some. I believe there are some booking uh, issues and people not showing up and whatnot that uh, led to this kind of random, uh, random revisit to the old Florida territory days with the. You remember the feud of Dusty Rhodes and Kevin Sullivan back then, and, he, and Gary Hart is here in Kevin Sullivan's corner because Gary Hart and Dusty Rhodes have had issues since 1974. Well, the funny thing is, is a lot of people may not know these guys actually had a really good feud back in like 1982 and 1983. Um, which kind of led to Dusty doing the Midnight Rider gimmick at first. Because uh, there was an angle, I believe, where Jake Roberts had told everybody that there was a man named Nivik Navalis that offered to pay him $1,000 every time he injured Barry Windham, who was Dusty's protege. <laughs> and people were kept wondering who this mystery man was. And eventually, Kevin Sullivan revealed himself to be the money man and turned on Dusty Rhodes and um, Mike Graham. And basically, the weird name I tried to pronounce was Kevin Sullivan spelled backwards. Yes, much like in TNA back in day. Do you know what relic spell? Uh, you know what relic spelled backwards is? <laughs> Bad wrestler. <laughs> Damn right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but yeah, I mean Kevin Sullivan. He's, and Kevin Sullivan went into the heavy into the devil worshiping routine and. Uh, him and Dusty had quite the few during that point. And, yeah, you, you, you mentioned the Loser Leaves Town match leading to the Midnight Rider and all kinds of good, wholesome family fun from Dusty and the games master Kevin Sullivan. And uh, it's kind of a revisit here. It's, it's a grudge match from back in the day with, uh, you know, with Gary Hart there in the corner. And uh, random booking, as I said, because I think there was supposed to be something with uh, Dusty and Ronnie Garvin at this point, and Garvin had uh, decided to leave. And there's some other people involved that weren't there. It's just lots of backstage stuff going on here. And I think Dusty just decided, hey, let me wrestle with my old, with my old opponents. So, real quick, too, that what actually led to the original Midnight Rider was there was a cage match in 82 with Dusty and Sullivan that a lot of people don't remember because everybody remembers the uh, Star Wars cage match in World Class that year. Yep. And Dusty is on the verge of winning this Loser Leaves Town match against Sullivan when that bastard Santa Claus fucking arrives and sneaks a foreign object to Kevin Sullivan oh. so he knocks Dusty Rhodes out to win and Santa Claus in this instant 
I don't know if you'll believe this, Steve, was played by that devious Jake Roberts. So, well, I, I would never put anything past Jake the Snake Roberts. I can only imagine Jake Roberts and Kevin Sullivan together. Oh, the evil ideas that would come from those two men. Yeah. But uh, since, uh, he had to, since Dusty was gone for 60 days, the Midnight Rider started to appear, which led to J.J. Dillon trying to unmask him. The Midnight Rider actually beating Ric Flair for the NWA title, but there was some obscure rule that banned masked wrestlers from holding the title, and they had to reverse the decision. So there's a little bit of your Dusty Kevin Sullivan Midnight Rider history lesson, kids. I remember the masked wrestler business. About, I remember that coming up years later. Uh, you might recall the mid-90s WCW, where legendary masked wrestler The Assassin made his, made his comeback to WCW. That's right. And it, the story he was telling, and one of the stories he was telling at that time was that apparently he, he alleges that he would have won the NWA championship from Dusty Rhodes if he had agreed to take off his mask, which he did not. And I'm sure that's complete bullshit, but that's, that's what he's telling us at the time. Are you saying you don't believe him, Steve? That's exactly what I'm saying. I mean, yeah. that, that assassin guy, I mean, a well-spoken individual, but not one to be trusted. Fair enough. So, at the end of the day, they go seven minutes. This match sucks. <laughs> oh, but hang on. We have to explain why it sucks. Yeah. They're, they're having a brawl, which in and of itself isn't bad. The finish sees Al Perez arrive to attack Dusty Rhodes. Dusty Rhodes fights off Kevin Sullivan, Al Perez, Gary Hart, and then pins who, Steve? Who does he pin? He pins the playboy Gary Hart himself. And somehow this is good enough in the obscure NWA role set to allow Dusty Rhodes to win the match. Tommy Young was okay with it. He was, uh, he was fine with Dusty. And I think he gave it a fast count, too. So I think the officiating in this particular matchup might have been a little bit... I'm not, I'm not saying that the referee might have been paid off, uh, but... <laughs> I'm not saying Dusty Rhodes might have had some sway over the commission, but uh, yeah, just uh, ugh, just weird stuff all around. And you know, Al Perez coming down was this? Would this have been around? Because we, I'm seeing Larry Zbysko on the last show. Was this when Larry Zbysko and Baby Doll had the pictures? It might have been. And then Baby Doll disappeared, and they had the junk that gimmick too. Yeah, I don't I, fully remember. Unfortunately, it might have been. Yeah, there's. But... There's a lot of there's a lot of weird booking stuff going on in 1988. Dusty was kind of he was burning the candle at both ends at this point. He was <laughs> a little scatterbrained, a little uh, some weird, strange, strange decisions going on, such as Dusty Rhodes pinning Gary Hart to defeat Kevin Sullivan. Yeah, it's um. Listen again, we love Dusty, <laughs> but this was not good. It was bad booking, and the match was not good. And it was later this year, as I remember correctly, where uh, Dusty also thought it was a good idea to have Rick Steiner pin uh, Rick Flair in five minutes at Starcade. Yeah, there was a lot going on that year, Steve. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, if we had a camera behind the scenes for that. Oh, that documentary. That had been something else. So next up, we had a Russian chain match with Uncle Ivan Koloff with Paul Jones and the first Russian assassin <laughs> facing off with... Ricky Morton, Steve, and well, you know the Koloffs and the uh, Rock and Roll Express had some issues back uh, a couple years ago. Yeah, um, basically the angle coming into this is Paul Jones has given Uncle Ivan the "you're in or you're out" by winning ultimatum because he thought Uncle Ivan was the weak link in Paul Jones's army. And if, oh, good lord! I know. I, I, as Paul Jones's uh, army had pretty much had weak links for most of his existence. Is all yeah. it has weak links. 
And I also believe this was a weird time where Robert Gibson was gone. I believe he was fired for a bit. I was wondering where he was here because I would you'd have to figure that uh, with Ricky Morton out here against uh, Ivan Koloff and the assassin number one and then Paul Jones that you would think Robert Gibson would be there. No, he was not there. So, And this is a Russian chain match, which means they are chained together, and it's also the touch the four corners gimmick. Yeah. So it's... It starts out all right. Uncle Ivan's kind of overpowering him and bullying him around. Ricky Morton plays Ricky Morton and then makes his own comeback. So he's Ricky and Robert here. Darn right. And he he fights off the beatdown. He touches three corners. Uh, Paul Jones grabs Ivan to keep Ricky from touching the final corner, but he lets his grip slip, which allows Ricky Morton to touch the final corner and win in just under 10 minutes. The post-match is Paul Jones blaming Ivan for the loss. He berates him until Ivan has enough. He starts beating his ass until Russian assassin number one, which for those of you wondering is the angel of death and Russian and the assassin number two, which was Jack victory um, arrived and you know, they beat him down and the whole gimmick here was they were going to reunite uncle Ivan and Nikita Koloff to take on the assassins. But Nikita was powdering out because his wife was uh, very sick and dying. And that was, uh, again, as Steve said, there was uh, some no-shows and weird booking stuff going on here. And this was another one of them. Yeah, I have a call if his lair joined his tag team by the junkyard dog of all people. Yes. Which, uh, you know, <laughs> boy, yeah, if, if, that, if that angle went already dead at that point, sure, it certainly was by then. But uh now, you mentioned Nikita, and uh, I think the, the logical booking, which it might have even been pitched at some point, would be this would be a fine time for Ivan and Nikita to get back together. And during the beatdown, Ivan, you hear the fans chanting for Nikita. The fa- I think the fans kind of caught on to that idea as well. But uh, Nikita didn't come out. And I've even read some speculation online that, uh, in fact, Nikita was supposed to make the save, but he had already left the building. Yeah, again, that was the uh, the big... The, Nobody told him. <laughs> yeah, well, the big the big rumor was that that was going to be the reunification of that team, and uh, yeah, that didn't happen. But yeah, that was, that was one of those early crowd instances of the crowd really picking up on an angle and chanting for the guy, you know, and really interested. And I, I think that, I mean, again, the, unfortunately the match isn't good, but the post-match isn't bad... Had Nikita came out after the fans were cheering for him like that, I think that would have got a monster pop. Yeah, it would have been, it would have been some good good business there. Yeah. And you could have had the call-offs against Russian assassins, may even have uh, Dr. Death hang out with him or whatever. You could have had the makings of an interesting little group. But so. instead, we got uh, nothing. Ivan Koloff kind of... Yeah, he was there for a little while longer, but eventually just kind of faded off into obscurity and into North Carolina, right? I guess so, yeah. So he he uh he went to North Carolina and he hung out and he uh found the Lord and again another guy that trips you out when you meet him in real life after you watched him as a youngster and then you realize, hey, they don't sound like the weird Russian guy all the time. Yeah. What's that about? <laughs> God damn. How about the and uh, this was followed up by a wonderful promo segment with uh, Tony Schiavone and Ric Flair up there, and they introduced us to uh, John Ayers, formerly of San Francisco 49ers, formerly the UWF commissioner. I guess he's a friend of Bill Watts's or something. And they bring him in here because he's going to be refereeing a Flair versus Luger title match, and it's really embarrassing because John Ayers cannot talk. 
Yeah, and he serves as the special uh, enforcer for our main event, which is the United States champion, Barry Windham, who we've talked about already, facing off, Steve, with the man called Sting. Yeah, the Stinger getting the main event on the first three clashes. I think people knew that they had a star in this guy, and he keeps getting these big uh, these big opportunities here. Now he's going for a U.S. championship against Barry Windham. And uh, I'll tell you what, for the most part, this is a lot of fun. And you, you, you have, like Jim Ross mentioned on commentary, that uh, you know how both these guys look like they could be uh, you know top stars for the next five years or so. Yeah, and so the match is really, really good. It's one of those matches that if you have a finish to it, I think becomes great. Like a, a clean finish to it. Yeah, there was, but, um, well, the... There wasn't even really a finish, I would say, to be honest. Well, what ends up is a, a disqualification because yeah, the yeah. end, it kind of breaks down. J.J. tries to use a chair. Sting sees him coming. He goes after him. Barry Windham um, hits Sting with the chair, covers, picks up. He looks to pick up a near fall, but our friend John Ayers tells Tommy Young what's going on. It leads to a disqualification in about 21 minutes. Um it was going along, like I said, it, it could have been great with the right finish. It's really, really good. I enjoyed it a lot. Again, Barry Windham at this time, just a great worker. Um, like Steve said, Sting is main eventing these shows. He is showing why they are investing in him. He's over. He has a ton of potential. And I guess for modern fans that might not have seen this, this match feels like John Cena versus JBL if it was really good. Because <laughs> I think those are fair comparisons. Like if 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 JBL was a was an actual great worker, and Cena wasn't so clunky, like this is JBL and Cena, but really good. Yeah, there were a couple interesting spots in the match. Uh, one that kind of one that was interesting to me was uh, you know Sting was working the sleeper hole at this point. He did he had the sleeper there for a couple minutes where I guess they even mentioned on commentary like he was trying to, like he learned it from Dusty Rhodes. You know Dusty Tom the the old Weaver Lock, which was uh, I guess in their way put Dusty over right. Yeah, that yeah. And, and yeah Jim Ross explains on commentary that <laughs> he wanted to use the hold. You're not wrong by the way, but he yeah. wanted to use the hold because Barry Windham had never seen him use it before, so he was going outside the box to try to win the championship. Well, that's an idea. I mean, I can kind of get that. Um, I didn't even know watching this that John Ayers was a ringside enforcer. I just thought he was, in, I thought he was just sitting at the, the announce table with uh, JR and Bob Cottle and just kind of randomly pops up and uh, just tells Tommy Young, hey, this happened, and Tommy believed him. For the first time in history that I can recall, somebody comes in, tells the referee something happened, and the referee believes him. Yeah, it's a, it's a little weird, but... um. So that is Clash of the Champions 3, Steve. And your final thoughts and a score out of 10, my friend. Well, I'm going to say this is a, I, I think it's a slightly better show overall than Clash 2 because you did have, I thought Wyndham and Sting was a much better main event than, you know, the, the tag match, except for that interesting little finish piece of business there. You had a pretty solid opener with uh, Rotunda and Armstrong. The, uh, sheep, the sheep herders and Wyndham, Williams and Koloff is really good. Dusty versus Kevin was kind of a mess. Uh, Ricky and Ivan was not bad, but could have been better. No, I thought it was bad, but okay. <laughs> well, I mean, it could have been better if people were in the building to make the save, I guess yeah. you could say. <laughs> might enough. come up a lot better that way. And you had John Ayers talking, which wasn't really great. But, uh, 
Yeah, I'm going to say it's a step up from Clash 2. Maybe the expectations were a little bit lower, so they're they able to exceed them. So I'm going to go about... I'm going to go about a six or so on this one. That's actually what I have too as well, Steve. I, I thought it was a perfectly average show. Started out with the two good matches, had a very, very good main event. That middle, those uh, two matches though before the main event were just bad though. I'm like, if, you, if you're looking for ratings for like the matches for me, first two <laughs> matches I go about three stars on. The next, the, the two after that are like that one star range. They're bad. Uh, main event, yeah. I go uh, three and three-fourths. Like I said, it's close to a great match. Would have been great if they had a clean finish. Uh, I go with 6.0 as well. I thought perfectly solid show. As Steve said, it's a little bit better than the previous show. Still couldn't live up to Clash number one. The cage match culminative score for comparison, Steve, for this one is also a 5.7. All right. So... Um, but that is going to wrap us up for Clash of Champions 2 and 3. Uh, before I give the sign-off, I want to remind everybody, Steve and I are taking recommendations for uh, retro reviews, uh, as well as Kevin and I. Um, please, um, for the sake of keeping things easy, especially for Steve, um, WWE Network recommendations or full shows that happen to be free on YouTube. Please don't ask Steve to try to go to other sites that he would have to subscribe to. Because he, right. he does not get paid to subscribe to those other sites. So, I do not. So if it's on the WWE Network and you want us to review something, shoot us a recommendation. Um, I know Impact Wrestling has a lot of free shows on uh, their YouTube. So those are fair game. We've done some of those. Um, things like that. So if you want to recommend stuff like that, feel free. We will consider it. And as I said, that's going to wrap us up. Clash 2 and 3. We thank everybody for your time. All right, welcome back to the closing segment of today's show. We're going to talk talk Dark Side of the Ring, which means Jerome Kisan is back. Jerome, how are you, my friend? I'm doing well, Larry, and this is definitely not our second time trying this. Definitely not. Definitely, definitely not. No, no way. Not at all. Um, so, <laughs> we are talking our usual Dark Side of the Ring, and uh, we definitely have a show this week, man. Uh, these things are always interesting for various reasons, and this week it is the... Dr. D. David Schultz special and the quote-unquote slap heard around the world. Yeah, and there's there's so many people to talk about. I think that one of the things that makes this episode a little bit better than some of the prior ones is you don't have as many talking heads on this episode as you do previous ones. And you also have some clear personalities that come across in the people who are talking and I don't want to be disrespectful to the families because I think it is important to have their voices heard when you're talking about uh, the, the deaths of Nancy Argentino and Dino Bravo. But I think what you have this week is you have a, a something that's a little bit on the lighter side, even though a slap to the face isn't necessarily light. I think there is a lot more levity to this episode, and I think it makes for a, a fun watch. But I think there are certainly some serious issues that also um, are getting addressed here by some different voices that we may have heard in the past. But uh, you certainly have uh, a lot of workers, and uh, John Stossel is one of them. Definitely, because not only do we have John Stossel on here, not only do we have David Schultz, but we got uh, got Jim Cornette on here. And we've talked about Jim in the past, and there are 
shows where it is perfect to have Jim Cornette on and a show like this is it. And there's a gentleman named Eddie Mansfield on this show. And, uh, yeah, it's uh, it's one of those ones, if you put up a poll and ask the uh, the viewing audience who the bigger worker is on this show, I'm not sure that there's a clear winner. I almost think Jim Cornette always wins because I truly think that he is the worker of all workers because I think he is able to manufacture rage about pro wrestling in a way that nobody else can. And his, his hatred for Vince Russo is so exaggerated that I can't help but think that that's almost a work. So for me, Jim Cornette is always the biggest worker because on the one hand, he criticizes any Mansfield for his viewpoint, but then on the other, he criticizes people for blackballing David Schultz when he himself has been he was in management and wrestling for a number of years in the late eighties or early nineties. He could have booked David Schultz and he didn't. So he's a hypocrite and we can get into that later. I mean, it's a fair point. He's definitely up there, but I mean, you watch this show and it's a, it is almost a little bit hard, but yeah, the Cornette Russo stuff, I think we can agree. I think by this point that Cornette is just, he's worked himself into a complete shoot because it's just, I'm sure he does hate Vince Russo, and while Vince Russo tries to play it down, I'm sure Vince Russo doesn't like him, and it's 2020, and these assholes are still arguing over each other. Thankfully, not on this show. Thankfully, not on this show, but um, because a lot of all, everything that gets addressed here is taking place years before Vince Russo was even involved in wrestling. That's right. So, Dr. D. David Schultz, he slapped her around the world. We. Open our uh, documentary as um, the, they put over David Schultz as a great heel, one who uh, very much protected the art of professional wrestling and how it cost his career, how it kind of cost him his career in the long run. They talk about the old code protecting the business, the old kayfabe from time gone by. And we get a bit of current day David Schultz going into uh, some giant storage containers at his house, and he talks about uh, being the one of the greatest professional wrestlers of all time. And David Schultz again, this guy we're to learn throughout the show, he's definitely a worker. He was trained by a big time carny worker named Herm Wel- Herb Welch, and um, who was a guy who lived and died by the business, and um. He was one of those guys that when he trained you to get into the business, he uh, beat the shit out of guys to break them in to see if they'd stick around. And um, I guess uh, Dave Schultz was one of those guys who picked up on it really well and was beating the shit out of guys, and they had to eventually smarten them up and teach them about the old kayfabe, Jerome. Yeah, and it's really tough to contextualize that era to now because I think the idea of treating wrestling as real is just so absurd at this point that I think it's it's almost beyond recognition for people. I mean, we're at a point when, you know, people who are wrestling fans today, their parents may not have even been alive in 1989 when pro wrestling was basically officially declared fake by Vince McMahon and the WWF to the to the Maryland Athletic Commission, but at this you know at the at, in the seventies and eighties, I mean, this is something 
that was very clearly taken seriously. And I don't know. I, I have a very complicated relationship with this because I think that there is a certain idea of respect for any profession that you get into. I think you have to be respectful of the people who have come before you. I think you have to be respectful of the people that you're currently working with and depending on the field. You know, you may be working in customer service or you may be working with students if you're a teacher. So I think you have to always be mindful of who you are as a professional. But I think where it crosses the line is when you're just beating people up, that's not what pro wrestling is supposed to be about. Pro wrestling is physical. It is meant to be an activity where people can absolutely get injured. But the idea of just hurting someone completely violates what wrestling is supposed to be about. Yeah, it is really funny when you think about it because they, they talk about, you know, the code and, you know, like, you know, the whole protecting the business. And there's one thing about protecting the business, but as you said, it's like the unwritten rule is not only do you protect yourself, but more importantly, you protect the other person you're in. So you have this weird initiation thing here from a time gone by to where, they literally would beat the shit out of guys. You know, you hear horror stories about the first day of training from the old days. Guys, uh, you know, just going out to hurt other people just to see if they'll come back and how tough they are. How much of a man they are. And just such fucking horse shit, you know? Thankfully, we have gotten past a lot of that shit. I think we have mostly gotten, I think there are certainly outliers who exist, but for the most part, we've gotten past the point where we are intentionally hurting people. I mean, to be honest with you, the last time that I remember somebody intentionally hurting someone to the point where it would make the media was Tony Cozina and the Iowa heist of 2012 or 13. That's the last time that I remember something like this really coming to the forefront. God, that seems like forever ago, too. Yes, and we we need a dark side of the ring on that. <laughs> no doubt. So, so we go to David Schultz. You know, we're current day David Schultz. He's talking about uh, to succeed in wrestling. You know, the basics. You need to know how to work. You need to know how to elicit a crowd reaction. This is where Jim Cornette joins the show, and he says, uh, "Dave Schultz succeeded by being a turned up version of himself." and I think that's something we've heard throughout the years, Jerome. A very basic thing in wrestling. You need to you need to know how to work, whatever, however you define working. You need to be able to get that crowd reaction. And you need to um, have that personality. And a lot of people say the best personality for a person is just uh, your personality turned up to 11, so to speak. Well, I think that this is something that has worked in professional wrestling for a really long time. I think that that is the theory, and I think it's a good theory. I think Jim Cornette is certainly not without his flaws, but when he speaks about this idea of somebody just turning their personality up to a 10 or 12, that's not just something that works in wrestling. That's something that works in movies, too. How many times do you watch an actor and their performance feels really, really authentic, and it's probably because they're essentially just playing themselves with the volume turned up to 10 and 10 or 12 Robert Downey Jr. Playing Tony Stark. He's not playing Tony Stark. He's playing himself with the volume turned up. That's basically all he's doing. And I think that's true for wrestling. I think wrestling when it's at its best, that is, that is how it should work is people 
who are playing themselves because you're getting something that feels authentic. And even in this promos that you saw with David Schultz, David Schultz is very clearly a good interview. He's very clearly someone who could draw a lot of money. And I definitely bought the idea that this guy could be a top heel just based on what I saw briefly. You saw his personality really shine. I agree. And to go back to something I said earlier, I said, um, you know, you have to know how to work. However, you kind of view that. And what I mean by that real quick is, you know, you talked about earlier, the first episode in this season is that one that focuses on Chris Benoit. So we see a lot of Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero. And I think we can agree that Chris Benoit and Eddie Guerrero are viewed as two great workers. And depending on how you view their work rate, two of the greatest in-ring workers in the history of wrestling to a point. They're excellent professional wrestlers. And you have a group of people that will view them as outstanding workers. But on the other hand, there is another crowd of people that will totally defend that somebody like Hulk Hogan is the greatest worker in professional wrestling because he drew the most money and he got the most out of doing the least. And it's very interesting how certain people will define work. Like, I never watched a lot of Dr. D here. I never watched a lot of David Schultz matches. But I had seen a lot of video of promo stuff. And just like you said, watching this one, you watch the promo work of him. And in that regard, I mean, the dude looks like, you know, kind of a hell of a worker. And like you said, you could buy him as a a big-time top heel and that he would draw money. And that's the thing. It's like... I haven't watched a lot of his matches, but if you're if I if all I did was see a sizzle reel of this guy, I would probably believe he's some kind of great worker that would draw money. You know what I mean? Well, and I think what's also interesting is that he he basically comes around at the perfect time because he is not only a villain, but he also has a hero, a clear babyface to play off of that being Hulk Hogan, and that's something that both the AWA and the WWF are able to take advantage of that. You have not only Hulk Hogan, but you also have Dr. D David Schultz. And I mean, you have a clear, perfect dynamic. And what's fascinating is, is if you watch those David Schultz WWF promos, I mean, he is clearly aligned with Rowdy Roddy, Roddy Piper at that point. So you've got two guys in Piper and Schultz who are great foils for Hulk Hogan. And it's very possible that David Schultz would have drawn a ton of money with Hogan beyond 1984 and into when the WWF really was taking off once WrestleMania hit. Yeah, and as you as you mentioned, uh, they talk about uh, Schultz talks about he worked with Hogan in Florida. They became friends, and Hogan actually lived with uh, David Schultz in his apartment. Hogan went to the WWF, and it's in '83. Uh, and Schultz says Hogan wanted him to come there. Hogan went for the money, obviously, and uh, Schultz was eventually brought in, was promised big money as a heel for Hogan, and um, following promos on the show, Schultz was allegedly, they show these promos of Schultz just kind of going fucking wild back in the day, and he's cutting a promo in his house, holding a rifle, and quote-unquote shooting off rifles in his house, Yelling at his wife to go make him a sandwich. Telling his kid to shut up and not look at him and shit like that. And apparently there were stories that local police were actually called. 
and people wanted charges filed against David Schultz for alleged spousal and child abuse. Which kind of ranks right up there where um, the Memphis fans wanted Eddie Gilbert arrested for trying to run over Jerry Lawler with a car on quote-unquote live TV. I mean, it's pretty incredible. And, I mean, it's just, it's amazing to think that, I mean, wasn't there reports even not too long ago of people calling because of something that happened on an episode of Raw? So this is not something that happens as much, but it shows what happens that when you put something on television, some people are going to believe it and they're not going to, they're not going to see that it's a work. They're going to, they're going to see it as, as a shoot. And I think it's, you know, these promos are goofy to an extent with hindsight, but I can see this working on people. I can see why people, would want to would want to pay money to see Hulk Hogan kick this guy's ass because David Schultz is being an asshole to his own family. So yeah, I would want to pay to see Hulk Hogan kick that guy's ass. Absolutely. Yeah, I think when you contextualize it um, in its time frame, that's why it works. It's like, you know, listen. Like I, I recently, um, I've been trying to obviously fill gaps with uh, columns and reviews and stuff. And one thing I did is I went back and I did a whole column looking at all of Hogan's WrestleMania matches. So going back, it's like I'm watching um the build for WrestleMania six with him and Warrior. And him and Warrior's promos, you look at them now, and you're like, Jesus Christ, were these two on acid? But you put it back in that time frame, and it was perfect for these two at the time frame, which is why it worked. And yeah, you look at this, Hogan is this Big, jacked-up American hero. David Schultz is this shitty, trashy redneck shooting off guns, yelling at his wife to make him a sandwich, and threatening to slap his kids. And I understand that today people are like, well, yeah, blah, blah, blah. It seems very cliche. But in that 80s time frame, that works. It's basic heroes and villains, which is, first of all, what wrestling thrives on when it's done really well. And secondly, though, during that time, man, it just, that kind of shit was just clicking. That's how you made the money. That's the kind of program that got people to go to house shows. Well, yeah, and that's at a time when you had to draw money in order to be have any sort of success. I think people have lost track of the fact that, I think people have lost track of the idea of actually being able to draw money when it comes to professional wrestling. I think so much of what pro wrestling is about now is, brands draw I think there are certain people inherently draw but I don't think that that is as prevalent as it was in 1984 in 1984 if you just gave WWF at that time the money that they got from TV and that's how you expected them to survive they probably can't because they're running syndicated television, they're running cable, and cable has nowhere near the meaning that it does now. But WWE probably is not going to be able to run a live show for the rest of 2020, and they're going to be a profitable entity because they're making $250, $300 million from Fox and USA Network, right? Uh, they're they're making a billion dollars a year. on. Uh, or, or, yeah, it's like... Uh, not a billion dollars a year, but they they have these TV deals. Yeah, they're making an insane amount of money. It's probably 
I think it works out to five to six hundred thousand, uh, five five to six hundred million combined or something like that. It's it's insane. Yeah, I mean it's it it is something where they can they cannot they could not run a show in front of people and still be able to make a profit, and that's yeah. something that in 1984 you just couldn't do. No, it was unheard of. That's like a dream sequence in nineteen in the eighties. That's yeah. So it's um, it's just again, it's it's a crazy time when you look back on it. So WWF is growing at this time. They're starting to get mainstream attention, and one of the, some of that attention came from John Stossel and ABC's Twenty Twenty, which a lot of young people might not know. That's a news program. It is a news program. I think people are a little bit aware of 2020 because we are in the year 2020 and it's a hellscape and I blame Hugh Downs. There you go. So uh, Stossel was a consumer reporter and um, basically before our initial part of this uh, recording got trashed, we were talking about, uh, you were talking about John Stossel and like his views on journalism, Jerome. So I think one of the things that I was saying was that John Stossel, to me, this is how he comes across. I don't know if this is completely accurate, but this is my read on who John Stossel is as a person. Because if you put things into context, this is 1984. You know, he doesn't start 1984. He's coming up through the ranks. And he strikes me as the type of person who came up during a time after Woodward and Bernstein. And when I say the words Woodward and Bernstein, they are the investigative journalists for the Washington Post who helped to expose the Watergate scandal to a much wider audience. And that eventually led to the resignation, the only time that a president has ever resigned in the 250-year history of this country, that it only happened with Richard Nixon and Bob Woodward and Carl Bernstein are two of the reasons. They're not the only reasons, but they certainly played a contributing factor. So what happened is, is that they exposed journalism in a brand new way. They made it seem very sexy. Journalism on a day-to-day basis is not that. It is not something that is a sexy job. It is something where you're working the phones on a day-to-day basis. And if you watch the movie All the President's Men, it actually does a pretty good job of illustrating what journalism is. It's frustrating. It's tedious, especially in the 1970s when you can't Google things. Uh, Journalism even now is very tedious, as I'm sure many people will tell you. But John Stossel comes across as the type of person who is not that kind of journalist. He is – he strikes me as the kind of person who – saw what Woodward and Bernstein did, and that's what he wanted to do only, to expose people, to do the gotcha interviews. And I think that that is represented in the way that he presents this story. And certainly, it seems as though he does do some good things. If he's if he's a consumer reporter and he's going out there and he's exposing tobacco companies, or if toys have asbestos in them, I'm just making shit up, but if they have asbestos in them and he's exposing that, these are very good things. But the problem is, is that if you get into a position where you're kind of believing your own hype or you see yourself in this specific way, then you're going to get yourself in trouble. And that does not justify David Schultz's behavior. I'm not going to do that. But it opens himself up to critiques from other people. Yeah, and I think the the thing that leads him to be that way is just not the Woodward and Bernstein comparison. It's the fact that in the 80s, being that consumer reporter was the really cool gotcha thing because you were always 
one-upping somebody. You were always trying to expose somebody. You were always, that was your end game at all times. So I think that's just, it was part of the culture that he kind of maybe grew up on coming into reporting. And then that's the exact kind of reporting he got into, which is why he kind of still feels like he remains that way. So it's a, but yeah, it's, um, it's really, it's weird looking back on him. So 2020 wants to do a piece on professional wrestling. They want to look into it, not being quote unquote real. And John Stossel basically states on this, that he hated that some fans thought wrestling was real and believed in this bullshit. And he found a gentleman who was a former professional wrestler, or uh, he was a professional wrestler named Eddie Mansfield, to be part of this news piece. And Mansfield talks about, he, he joins us on this thing, thing, and he talks about drawing money and being able to work. And when he was, uh, here's the thing about Eddie Mansfield, and I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Eddie Mansfield was a fine mid-card heel. He was a territory mid-card heel. But if I'm being quite honest with you, this guy was kind of like a Dollar Tree fucking Buddy Rose. He wasn't as good as Buddy Rose. He didn't make money like Buddy Rose. And he would go territory to territory. He would work the lower mid-card. And that's what he was and hey, don't get me wrong i mean everybody has their place in the business not everybody's going to be the star but that's what eddie mansfield was so it's i you know we talk about workers on this show and obviously him putting himself over as part of that but one thing that he was doing early on which was never appreciated much in the wrestling business was he was trying to fight for wrestlers rights in terms of getting things like health insurance which is still something people are trying to get today. Yeah, I think that this is where Eddie Mansfield becomes a really important figure within the context of this story because to me the way it came across is that Eddie Mansfield, his agenda in in participating in the story was to illuminate the issues that he was passionate about. This idea of demanding health care having some sort of a retirement plan, a pension plan, a 401k of some sort. And he also specifically mentioned this idea of kicking back 20%. So it wasn't just that he wanted rights, but he also didn't want to have to give 20% back to the promoters, something that I also think is complete and utter bullshit. And I think that regardless of what his position is in the industry, I think it's unfortunate that his that viewpoint doesn't get listened to a lot and i think that you know jim Cornette and larry or david schultz they they try to portray mansfield as kind of a cancer on the business but the reality is that if if eddie mansfield if he gets his way david schultz doesn't get blackballed and david schultz possibly is in a much better position from a negotiating standpoint. He has some sort of protections in place. If there is some sort of a union or something like that, then David Schultz might have a longer career because of that. So his comments about Eddie Mansfield are absolutely absurd to me because he's completely missing the bigger picture. And this is something that wrestlers still miss to this day because people want to ignore what David Starr says 
about wrestlers' rights and labor and all that stuff. So that's what Mansfield's agenda was to me. And John Stossel, the question that I wrote down is, why does it matter whether wrestling is fake or not? I mean, I think that if if we're talking about tobacco and you're talking about this issue of, okay, a doctor comes out and says tobacco is not bad for you and you're not going to get cancer from it. And a journalist finds out that, yes, you can get cancer from it and the odds of it are exponentially higher. You do an expose on that because – that person is lying and that person's lying is going to get you killed. It's the same thing when you're exposing pollution in the water or things like that. People's lives are at stake in those situations. Professional wrestling being fake doesn't have any impact on people's lives. And that's the, one of the things that really just struck me is that John Stossel completely missed the point of what he should have been trying to expose He's trying to expose this from a consumer perspective about whether this is fake or not, when I don't think it really matters. And my guess is that in 1984, some people some people believed it was fake and some people believed that it was real. But it doesn't matter. Just like, does it matter if Santa Claus is real if you get presents? Does it matter if the Tooth Fairy is real if you get money on your under your pillow? Like, that's the kind of thing that, that, that doesn't really matter but John Stossel's trying to make this into a bigger deal when he's really missing the point. The point is, is that wrestlers don't have any protections. And again, we're talking about 1984. We are, this is literally just months after the person in charge of the WWF, Vince McMahon, has covered up a murder. How, now, I know that there's no Google and the internet. It's much difficult to find these stories. But if you are a journalist... Shouldn't that be something you look into? Because that seems to be a much bigger deal to me from a consumer perspective than whether wrestling is fake or not. Yeah, so you got this 2020 special and Stossel doing it. So he gets Eddie Mansfield involved. And Eddie Mansfield is basically showing him the ropes, uh, the tricks of the trade, how to do moves. He even shows him about blading on camera. And... As you mentioned, Larry, can I interrupt? Can I interrupt you? I'm sorry, just for one second. Go ahead. I thought it was really weird that they brought up bleeding and the blade, and the and HIV and AIDS were not mentioned. I thought that was really strange, especially in 1984. Yeah, that seems like something you think that they really. Again, I think that goes to your bigger point of. Stossel missing a bigger point and just focusing on. Oh my God, this wrestling's fake bullshit. Because that's all he wanted to do. Because the only reason Eddie Mansfield did this, and this goes back to your point, and again, I, I just I, I wanted to give context on Eddie Mansfield as a wrestler. But the important thing is Jerome brought up is he only does this show because he wants to go and he wants to get a soapbox, for lack of a better term, to talk about the mistreatment of wrestlers, to talk about promoters taking twenty percent, like the original, like the moolah fee. You know, you have these trainers that are taking 20%. These guys have no health insurance. They have no kind of retirement. He wants to expose this stuff. Unfortunately, John Stossel is wrestling his fake bullshit, and that's all he wants to talk about. So none of that gets exposed. It's just John Stossel and his agenda of wrestling is fake. So, John Stossel and 2020 get the okay to go to a WWF show in Madison Square Garden. 
And this is where Vince tells David Schultz to stay in character when he talks to him and kind of puts Stossel in his place. Which Jim Cornette calls this whole thing a recipe for disaster. And it was because you have Stossel interviewing this guy and he gets to the whole is wrestling fake thing. Dave Schultz stays in character and he slaps Stossel. And David Schultz explains that he had to protect kayfabe and protect his high standards in the uh, in the business. And you have Jim Cornette who watches this. And I mean, yeah, Cornette is kind of throwing it off, but he's not exactly wrong when you watch this because I'm not saying David Schultz was right hitting him or anything, but John Stossel acts like David Schultz knocked the shit out of him. You know what I'm saying? I think there's a couple of issues that I see from both perspectives. So the way that John Stossel comes up to David Schultz, I think is very obnoxious. And I think that in itself is very problematic because he says that he has a question, but then he says, I think wrestling is fake. And that's not a question. And that is something that is very confrontational And the thing that you're not supposed to be in journalism is confrontational. And I think that is a problem, especially if you've never met this person. Like, if that's going to be your first point, then why would that person talk to you? Because you are, you're disrespecting what he's done. Yeah, I was going to say real real quick to interject. I mean, in in terms of pro wrestling in the 80s, he might as well walked up to him and said, hey, fuck you, your mother's a whore. Exactly. And it's the same thing when people say, oh, I bet teachers have all kinds of free time now that they're <laughs> at home and not in the classroom. I mean, you're just you're you're completely missing the point. Like the thing about wrestling is calling it fake is bad, but it's not be- be- because wrestling isn't fake. People get hurt. Real things happen. What you're missing is that wrestling is predetermined. That is the proper terminology. You know who's going to win. And you know who's going to lose. In an ideal world, what you're trying to do is you are making people believe that what you're doing is real, but you're not actually hurting the person. There's nothing fake about that. There's a performance aspect to it that isn't any different than if you go and sit and watch the John Wick movies. If you go watch the John Wick movies, especially with how close the action is, those people are also trying to make it look real, and they're also not trying to hurt the other person. So it's it's a very similar principle. So when when John Stossel says I think it's fake, you you're not going to get a good reaction. Like the smart thing to do would have been to just walk away. Um, but you know you can't slap a guy. You just can't do that. You can't slap someone in the face, especially when it's on camera. And I don't know how hurt John Stossel actually was. You know he c- talks about ringing in his ear and things like that. And I don't know. I don't think Jim Cornette is an authority on what the injuries actually are. And I don't know. Like, I'm very conflicted about it because I think what John Stossel's approach was wrong. But I also think that David Schultz was wrong, too. And in my universe, uh, two wrongs do not make a right. Yeah, I mean, they're definitely wrong. And there's no doubt that Stossel was an unprofessional asshole in the way he addressed them. But that, like you said, though, that doesn't mean you can just fucking hit a dude. And like I said, I mean, you watch the video, and honestly, it doesn't look like he hits him hard, but that's not the point. The point is, is just because somebody's an asshole doesn't mean you could hit him. That's just kind of a rule of everyday life. There are repercussions. 
And the best part is, is Jerem, you're going to be shocked, but the Athletic Commission, which, yes, there was Athletic Commission involvement at the time, fined David Schultz. And this is going to be shocking, but Vince McMahon paid off the Athletic Commission. Um, are we just, is Dark Side of the Ring, is it just Vince McMahon paying off various state athletic commissions in the <laughs> 80s? Because, like, the thing is, so we know of this incident. We know, we we probably, we think we know what happened in the Snooker case. I really want to know how many other people Vince McMahon has paid off. Because my guess is, it happened a lot. I bet the number's bigger than a breadbasket. I would guess that as well. So, but you have this happen, and um, Eddie Mansfield, again, like we said, he's completely vilified for quote-unquote exposing the business uh, and taking part in the piece, and um, he says it basically cost him his career, and all he was doing was trying to, uh, what he wanted to expose was not the business, but the shitty side of the business. And, again, he never got to do that because John Stossel didn't care and was too busy about wrestling his fake. So Vince decides that uh, there's some heat on Dr. D here, so they send him to Japan, hoping it's going to die down. And what's the first thing that happens when he goes to Japan? The Japanese company wants him to do an angle where he fucking hits a reporter. That's what I'd want him to do. I mean, that's what he's famous for, like... (laughs) Why would you want him to do that, especially Japan? I mean, it's such a, there's such a cultural difference in the way that wrestling is perceived. Of course Japan's going to do that. I mean, and I'm not even saying that as a negative thing. Like, hell yeah, do it. Why not? And the funniest side note to me is that David Schultz, on the night that he slapped John Stossel, wrestled Antonio Inoki, of all people, who is pretty famous for slapping people, right? Yeah, they do that whole ceremony in Japan to where uh, they basically would have hundreds of people line up and walk to the ring, and the whole gimmick is you walk in and Anoki slaps the shit out of you. And he's, uh, I guess it's some thing of he's transferring power to you, and it's an honor. But there, you can look it up on, like, go to YouTube and, like, type in, I think, like, Antonio Anoki slapping, and there's fucking ceremonies where, like, hundreds of people will just walk to the ring and get the shit slapped out of them by Anoki. And he ain't throwing love taps. That's what David Schultz should have said in court. He should have said, I wasn't slapping John Stossel. I was transferring power to John Stossel. I was giving him my fighting spirit, Your Honor. Yeah, I bet that would have gone over real well in a New York courtroom. So we have John Stossel talking about um, his, um, I, I'm just going to try to put it politely, his quote-unquote injuries. Because I don't know. Um, he claims his ears were ringing. He had headaches. But he thought Vince McMahon needed to be taught a lesson. So he sued the WWF. Of course, Vince McMahon tries to pass the buck off to David Schultz. David Schultz won't sign off on this bullshit and accept responsibility. So he starts to fall out of favor. Stossel ends up winning almost $300,000. I believe it was two hundred and eighty grand for a settlement. And he even says, and this is why John Stoss is a fucking worker, he's like, you know, I will admit that the pain did go away when I got paid. Again, two wrongs never make a right. It's, um, I think that's part of what makes it entertaining, right, is that you have two people who are very clearly kind of working each other in both Schultz and Stossel, and... 
that's that's part of what you what happens when you believe your own hype. I mean, you know, John Stossel is a journalist for 2020. This is at a time when there's no cable or there is cable, but it's not nearly as prevalent. So I have to imagine 20 to 25 million people are probably watching 2020 on a weekly basis. So John Stossel is probably someone that you could go on the street and what every other person you talk to might have some idea of who he is. So I think that's part of the issue when you start believing your own hype is that, you know, you become this, you become a version of yourself that is uh, more of a worker than, you know, John Stossel is becoming the person now who is turning his volume up to 12. It's really just funny how that worked out. Like all I could think of though is as soon as he said that, you know, when I did get paid, he's like, the pain went away. And I, I, I wrote, the first thing I wrote to him, I'm like, what a fucking worker, man. I'm like, look at this guy. But hey, you know, good on him. He got paid. So this transitions into talk of the WrestleMania era beginning, WrestleMania 1 coming up, and Mr. T's involvement. And David Schultz was not in, enthused with this bullshit because Mr. T wasn't a wrestler. He was going to be involved in the main event. And they talk about a an event in Los Angeles where Mr. T was in attendance with a bunch of his friends because he was there to see Hulk Hogan. And there's this alleged um incident with him and Dr. D. David Schultz. And I had heard for years that there was nothing to this incident. And basically, from what we hear on the show, there's really nothing to the incident. Dr. D just kind of... He wants to go up where he, um, where Mr. T is, because Mr. T is sitting with one of his friends. Once, was it like Hiramasuda or someone? It was, it was. Uh, I think Chief J Strongbow. No, just J Strongbow was working in the back. Oh yeah, I'm not sure who it was, but one of Schultz's friends was sitting by Doc, by Mr. T. Schultz wanted to visit him, and they basically what happened was. Strongbow had the cops go out and pull um, Schultz away. And this led to drama with him and Vince and his eventual firing. And the funny thing is, he talks about how, you know, there was no incident. And there, there wasn't an incident. Cause I, like I said, everybody I've, I've talked to and read about, there's really no incident. But years later, you know, Hogan does an interview. His good friend Hulk Hogan, brother. And Hulk Hogan says that, David Schultz was incensed and he goes to ringside and he slapped Mr. T brother. And that's why he got fired. And it's, uh, I know you're going to be shocked, but Hulk Hogan is working brother. I mean, that's the amazing thing is that we have two incredible workers in David Schultz and John Stossel. And now we are pretty much introducing somebody who could teach a masterclass on this idea of working people because Hulk Hogan is a liar he is a known liar. He's done it for years. And this is probably just a more example. There is no doubt in my mind that three quarters of the story at minimum is bullshit. And he's not someone that you could trust, Larry Zonka. And I, I, I'm, not, <laughs> I'm not surprised, but I think it's just really unfortunate that, that somebody who clearly had a lot of talent just kind of pissed it away. He clearly pissed people off, and if it wasn't the Mr. T incident as the documentary presents, it was going to be something else. And again, it's it's sad that David Schultz looks at Mr. T as the problem, 
when the problem is Vince McMahon, the problem is Vince McMahon not paying the other people in the company. It's not Mr. T. Mr. T is working too, presumably getting paid a shit ton of money because he's on one of the top rated shows in the United States of America at that time. So you shouldn't criticize Mr. T. He should be criticizing the person who is paying Mr. T. And the other thing is, is that, so even if you don't necessarily believe that logic, the other logic is that Mr. T being around is going to get a mainstream audience, is going to get a bigger audience, and presumably everybody's going to make more money. So there, there are a couple ways to look at it, and I think somebody with an older perspe- old school perspective is going to look at it as a circus, but I think somebody with the smart perspective is going to look at it and say, well, if Mr. T is going to be here, and Cindy Lauper is going to be here, and Liberace, and Muhammad fucking Ali, then maybe we're going to sell out Madison Square Garden, and maybe we're going to get a lot of people to come to the closed circuit locations, and WrestleMania is going to make a lot of money, and then we're going to go on the road and make even more money. So just, um, I thought that David Schultz was a smart person at the beginning of this documentary, and it was very clear to me by the end of it that he was not very smart. Yeah, I think the part of his anger really comes from the fact that he knew it by that point that he was being left out of the first mania. And obviously that's going to leave a sour taste in his mouth. But he, he mocks Hogan for having a big head and egotist and everything. And they then bring up Hulk Hogan and Mr. T appearing on the Richard Belter show. And this is the infamous show where... Um, Hulk Hogan is asked to show Richard Belzer a wrestling hold, and he basically puts him kind of in a guillotine, like in a front headlock. And he chokes out Richard Belzer, and he fucking slumps to the ground, and of course, nothing happens to Hulk Hogan because he's Hulk Hogan. Dr. D is not pleased about this bullshit. And uh, again, he talks about how he and Hogan were close friends until Hogan turned his back on him, and they didn't talk since, and this is where he feels like he was blackballed out of the business because there were he was working indies, but um, people didn't want to work with him, and that led to him transitioning out of the professional wrestling business, and, and as he says, becoming the world's greatest bounty hunter. Continuing with the work, and it's uh, it's really funny to me that Hulk Hogan clip uh, that they showed from Richard Belzer. Because for just a moment, I don't know if you felt this, but the, the Hulk Hogan facade went away for just a minute and it felt like Terry Bollea was speaking when he was talking about what he did to Belzer afterward. Like it really felt like a different person was speaking into well, the Like camera. he was actually being a real person for once. It was so weird because Hulk Hogan is always on, always even when he's speaking in the interviews and the documentaries that WWE does, he is always on. And it was so strange to me to see Hogan like that, to see like piss and vinegar. Like you definitely saw that. And that's not something that you ever see from Hulk Hogan. So I wanted to point that out. And yeah, I can, this, the, the bounty hunter thing is really interesting. Um, this is the second time in the season that we've talked about a professional wrestler being a bounty hunter. And it sounds like he was making more money being a bounty hunter than he was for being a pro wrestler. So perhaps he was having a lot more success at it. And maybe he ended up being a lot happier because of it. And he didn't end up a CTE. 
Exactly. So, uh, Dave Schultz, uh, he apparently, like, judging by everything he said, he loved being a bounty hunter. He developed a good reputation for his work. He had a lot of work, as Jerome just mentioned. And um, he talks a little bit about some of his exploits, including one time he tracked a guy to Puerto Rico that had kidnapped two young girls, and he ended up catching the guy and rescuing the two young women. And by the time he had caught up with them and rescued them, one of them had had a child. And He talks about how when he leaves Puerto Rico, he leaves with the guy, the two women, a baby, and a couple of dogs. Sounds Where's like the, a total pro wrestling adventure. I mean, again, he is a worker. I am very curious to know how many people he actually came up with. But it's clear to me that he had some success. He would not be on a TV show. He would not be getting paid the money that he was unless he was some level of effectiveness. Because David Schultz is not going to get a bounty hunter show because of his wrestling ability. He's going to get it. He has to have some reasonable facsimile of skill at this position in order to be able to do it. And yeah, I mean, you just got to, you got to give him credit for at least being able to find a a second job where he can also kind of be a worker as a bounty hunter. That's right. So, all right. So it is at this point where the business is transitioning and, Vince McMahon himself declares that pro wrestling is entertainment and not a sport, essentially exposing the business himself because why? He wants to get away from the state-mandated sporting regulations and commissions that are taking a piece of his delicious WWE pie and Vince needs all the pie he can because he has briefcases of money to uh, hand out to other people, Jerome, and he doesn't want it to be the commissions anymore. He certainly does, and I don't know how you classify wrestling. I am actually a believer that professional wrestling should be regulated, but it cannot be by athletic commissions because wrestling is not a sport, so you cannot hold it to the same standards. As the fact that the way the media portrays it, again, the media is missing the point. They're talking about this, oh, wrestling is fake, all this stuff. That doesn't really matter. The reason that Vince McMahon is doing this is because he wants to get out from under government regulation and he wants to be able to do whatever he wants to do. And without that kind of exposure, he is able to get away with a lot more things because of it. And I think that is a, that is a major problem. I do think that wrestling does need to be regulated. And what happens when wrestling is not regulated and what happens when the government lets them operate however they want to? You get professional wrestling shows being run in the state of Florida during a global pandemic. That's what happens. Pretty much. And so it's at this point where, uh, you know, Mansfield, uh, Eddie Mansfield rejoins the show and he talks about how he felt kind of vindicated in the fact that Vince did this because it's something that he was trying to say. And when he's asked about the David Schultz stuff, he basically says, only God can forgive uh, Dr. D. Schultz right now, uh, in current day, he uh, he drives deliveries on 18-wheelers. Jim Cornette says he could have been a big star, but at the same time, likely could have self-destructed on his own. They talk about how Vince basically wanted to be the Walt Disney of wrestling, and you know we all see that the Barnum and Bailey Act of Vince McMahon and Mansfield talks about how David Schultz and others had uh, disrespected him. 
while Stossel talks about that he hates being remembered pretty much only for this incident. Meanwhile, David Schultz is uh, pretty happy being immortalized by it. I mean, yeah. Um, You would expect David Schultz, the worker, to be pretty happy about it, even though it got him blackballed from the business. And I understand why John Stossel, as a journalist, would not want to be remembered for it, but... The lesson is is that as a journalist, you cannot become the story yourself. And in this particular case, John Stossel became part of the story. And it's really unfortunate because when John Stossel passes away, this is going to be the first line of his obit. And you're probably going to see a photo of him getting slapped. That's the unfortunate reality when you're known for a specific incident. And David Schultz, it's the same thing. This is probably going to be the first line of his obituary, too. That's right. And in in the ending, they asked Stossel if he has anything to say to uh, David Schultz, and he basically just says, fuck you. That is, I mean, that's the perfect ending, right? That's what you want the interviewee to say, because, like, it's a perfect capper, because it shows that John John Stossel is still a child and has not gotten over this. And was it entertaining? Hell yeah, it was, but as somebody who wants to see a 70 year old man behave like a 70 year old man, it's like, that's pretty embarrassing, especially for somebody who has children. I think he said he even has grandchildren at this point. That's pretty embarrassing to, to still be angry over this is pretty petty. It's pretty petty. And of course, when uh, David Schultz does his closing, he said, uh, all he says is that he stood up for wrestling and he doesn't care what anybody thinks of him. So, I mean, I guess that's a healthier perspective. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I mean, so that that's going to wrap up the uh, David Schultz and the slap heard around the world. Jerome, final thoughts on this episode. Uh, I really like this episode. I think that there were fewer talking heads, and I think it make, made for a more focused and entertaining watch. And I think that this is definitely more in line with the new Jack and the Chris Benoit episodes, which I think were really, really stellar. And yeah, I really thought that this was entertaining and I think it helps that both of the subjects who were kind of part of this were able to speak to the documentarians. So you got two very contrasting perspectives and even if they're both out of their goddamn minds, it's still pretty entertaining at the very least. So I was, I was very entertained and this was, I think this is also a situation where I think 45 minutes was perfect. I don't think this is one that you could necessarily make longer because then I think it would have felt a little bit repetitive and too long at 45 minutes. This, this is probably the type of story that is ideal for this program. It, it, I agree. It really is. I enjoyed this one as well. Again, it's, um, uh, let me, let me preface it by saying like, I didn't learn anything really from this one, but again, I'm not the audience they're going for. You know, we, we talked about this in the last couple episodes. I mean, they're not writing these shows for somebody like me who follows wrestling and writes about it and stuff. These are for people that may have heard about this or knew nothing about it. And I think they do a really good presentation. I agree with you. They do a good job of less talking heads. And basically, you, you have the big takeaway is you have David Schultz, who was a product of his time, trying to defend his business he believed in. You had John Stossel who kind of got into journalism in a weird way and tried to 
because he, he maybe not tried to, but he ended up, as you said, becoming the story, which shouldn't have been the goal. And then you had Eddie Mansfield, who was a guy who was villainized and demonized by getting into this whole situation because he actually had the best of intentions out of anybody. But he certainly did. But he's looked at he's, as a big asshole at the time. Kind of want to, kind of want to store a more. I, 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 I think forty-five minutes is perfect. But if you were to ask me what I would like to have seen more of, I would definitely like to know more about Eddie Mansfield. Agreed. So it's um, yeah. So it's it's really interesting, and that's gonna. I I don't really have anything else closing other than it was really enjoyable and uh. It was definitely a show filled with workers. That is absolutely true. John Stossel included. John Stossel included. I do want to point out, though, between Stossel, Mansfield, and Schultz, you know, these are all older guys. They all have very good hair. I was really impressed by all three of them. Mansfield still has a luscious ponytail going for him, man. Yeah, I mean, Stossel's hair. I mean, Stossel's like in his 70s, and... I mean that is that is some that is a great great look on him. Yeah. So yeah, good hair game. It's something to aspire to for sure. But Jerome, before, we have a uh, three episodes left next week. Herb Abrams into UWF. I I don't think I can illustrate how excited I am to watch this episode in words. Because if you, I want everyone to go to their computers and Google search Herb Abrams and look at the first image under the Google search. And you will understand why I'm excited because Herb Abrams is out of his goddamn mind. And I know a little bit about him, I don't know a lot. So next week's episode is one where I'm going to learn a lot. Yeah, very much looking forward to it. Herb Abrams next week, the following week is the Road Wars. We close up season two with Owen Hart. So before we go, Jerome, give a shout out to your other podcasting endeavors so the folks can follow you. Yes, this week on the Superhero Pantheon, we reviewed both Hellboy as well as X-Men Dark Phoenix. Uh, This, depending on when you're listening to this, if this is the first week in May, then you will be able to hear Kevin Ford and myself discuss the fourth season of Breaking Bad you can find all of that on EnterTheRealWorld.com, or if you search on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, all of your favorite podcasting apps, that's Enter the Real World. You can follow me on Twitter at Jerome C1985, and definitely looking forward to next week because we're going to be talking about some cocaine, Larry. We are cocaine and prostitutes in the pro wrestling business. What a combination. So that is going to wrap us up for this week. Uh, I want to thank Jerome as always. And uh, Jerome, quite honestly, I want to tell you one of the best parts of all this pandemic bullshit is the fact that you and I have got to reconnect and do these shows. I've been having a great time. I have too. And um, we'll see how much longer this is going on and whether we are going to extend this even beyond Dark Side of the Ring and start looking for other things to talk about. But uh, we'll figure it. We'll see where we're at in three weeks. You know, things change on a day-to-day basis. And... I don't know how much longer we're going to be indoors, but my guess is we're going to be indoors for quite a while. Very likely so. So anyway, thank you all for listening. This has been the 411 on Wrestling Podcast. You can follow us on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, YouTube, the 411mania.com website. 
and any major podcasting platform. Please make sure to subscribe to our show, share us around on social media, and if you have time, leave us a five-star review on the podcasting platform of your choosing. Until then, happy wrestling everybody and stay safe.